When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and first of all, I am so sorry for the audio last week. I had changed out some equipment and upgraded, or so I thought, but it ended up being a downgrade, and there were pops and crackles and letters that were dropped off and words that didn't end, and I am so sorry for that. I served my mission in Puerto Rico, as many of you know, and Puerto Rican Spanish is not the same as Spanish everywhere else. I thought I knew Spanish. My trainer was from Mexico. I could understand him perfectly. And then I started meeting Puerto Ricans whose philosophy was, who needs the end of a word? And I'm like raising my hand, uh, I do. I need every letter. All those that you're dropping off, uh, I needed them all. Especially on plural words that end in S. And yet in, for Puerto Ricans, any syllable that ends in S, uh, drop the S, it's fine. I got to the point where I could almost hear that silent dropped S and I knew like, oh, I know that sounded like singular, but it was plural, believe me. But if you struggled being a Puerto Rican missionary last week, it was not my intent to put you through that. I had just already done a four-hour take that ended up feeling like garbage and just, nah, I've got to do that. I've got to do that better. So I refilmed the whole thing and, and that's when audio problems picked up and I just couldn't bring myself to do it a third time. Uh, it has already been like an 11-hour filming day and that was, that was rough. This week I did some adjustments and, and thought I had it all worked out, did a test run and it sounded great and then filmed for five hours and as I was video editing, I realized that the audio was even worse than last week and I couldn't put you through that two weeks in a row. But putting myself through a second take, whew, let's cross our fingers and say our prayers and hope that this take, take two of Acts 16 to 21 goes even better than the first, especially on the audio. So, with that in mind, thank you for joining me for another week of scripture study. I know these are long lessons because of our approach. Most other uh, Come Follow Me channels, they're all wonderful, but most of them all jump around for good reason. Uh, there's so much to cover, and they'll pick the highlights or important parts and dig deep and share amazing things. My thought had been simply, that's wonderful, but in our own personal scripture study, we don't know how to do that. We don't connect dots because we don't know where they are. We can't jump around through a chapter. We start in verse 1 and we keep reading. And so that's what I've been doing here in hopes that I can be just a friend beside you in your own personal scripture study. Best case scenario, you're at home with the scriptures open in front of you and listening in and you can pause and mark things in your scriptures and just see where we're going. If instead you're on a run or a hike or a, a long-haul trucking route, if you're working or working out, then at least we're reading every scripture together. And you are getting your scripture study in. So break it up across the week, and, and I do pray that these lessons are blessings to you. Now, last week in Acts chapter 10 through 15, we covered a major hinge point in Christian history. As the gospel is now going to swing from Jew to Gentile. Peter and Cornelius and their, their dual visions, 
the Jerusalem conference that we ended with. If you didn't get through last week's material, at least go back and try to endure chapter 15. Because to see the, the decisions that were made at that Jerusalem conference, as apostles and elders come together to iron out some kind of compromise, what are we going to do to help facilitate the conversion of these Gentile converts without alienating the Jewish converts that constitute the church? That was, that was difficult. And to try to, to work those things out was a great example of the apostolic advantage that they had and that we still do. But that was last week. That was the first, that came at the heels of the first missionary journey of Paul. And what an incredible journey it was to take the gospel to places it had never been before. Now today we're going to be covering the second and the third missionary journeys. There's, that, that's Paul for you. You come home from one mission and just recharge the batteries and then head out for another one. And to see, in fact, the way things ended last week was the second missionary journey just getting underway. In fact, remember this verse, Acts 15, verse 36, where Paul says to Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. And see how they do. And we talked about what a blessing it is to be able to go back to our old mission stomping grounds to see how people do. And that's what Barnabas and Paul are going to do now. Now, this time, though, they're going to divide and conquer. And that way they can cover twice the, the space. And Paul is going to take Silas with him. We met him at the end of last week. Uh, he was called a prophet, lowercase p. But imagine having somebody with that testimony of Jesus, with that gift of prophecy. That'd be an amazing companion. Meanwhile, Barnabas takes Mark with him. Mark as in the Gospel of Mark. Remember last week, he's the patron saint of early return missionaries. And this early return missionary goes out on another mission and joins Barnabas and, and heads off as well. Those two go to Cyprus, that island in the northeast of the Mediterranean, while Paul and Silas stick to land and go north from Israel into Syria and then up around the corner, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean to go into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, into a region called Cilicia. And that's where we will pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, these were places he'd been at the end of his first mission, and he's going back to see how they do. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek. And that but would suggest that he was a Greek who didn't believe. Now this Timoth Timotheus, and the name is beautiful, Theo is where we get theology. So Theos means God, and the Timo there means honor. And so Timotheus is honored of God, or conversely, one who honors God. Both of those are true in his case. And in some ways, what a perfect mission companion to pick up, uh, because Paul is going to take Tim Tim Timotheus on. This is the Timotheus, as in the first epistle to Timothy, and second Timothy. He is a young man. He is, ends up being a young bishop of the church in Ephesus. And so when we get the letter of the Ephesians, these will, it will be addressed to people that Timothy comes to know and love. Timothy, in some ways, I'm glad we're meeting him right here at the start of this week's lesson and right at the start of the second missionary journey because he is, in some ways, the personification of what Paul is trying to accomplish. Because he, 
If Mark is the patron saint of early return missionaries, Timothy is the patron saint of part member families. And if you sometimes have felt pulled between parents or between siblings, in fact, with the number of people that have chosen to leave the church in our day, we're almost all part member families. And within our own home, under our own roof, we have people who believe and people who choose not to. And that's Timothy. And that's the Mediterranean world. You have staunch Jews that are holding to traditional Judaism. You have Jewish converts, Jews who believe, like Timothy's mother, uh, who have seen the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies in Jesus. But then they're part of this Greek culture in the wider world. And that's like having dad at, at home and saying, I don't know what... I love your mom. Don't get me wrong, Timothy, but I don't love her faith and I don't agree with it. And now Timothy is caught in the middle in the world, but not of the world. Growing up in the Gentile, Hellenized, Greek philosophy, Roman politics kind of world. And will I just go that route and not only be in dad's world, but of dad's world? Or will I choose my mother's faith and believe. Timothy does. In fact, in one of the letters of Timothy, Paul says to him, thank your mom and your grandma for your faith, because that's where it comes from. And again, the influence of sister saints is, runs deep uh, in the early church and in the modern church as well. But to see the kind of missionary Timothy will be, the kind of church leader and bishop he'll be able to be, as people are pulled between these, this is the tug of war, and they're the rope. And Timothy gets it. I know how hard it can be to have to make those kinds of choices. I know how hard it can be to try to keep peace at home when people don't see eye to eye on one of the deepest aspects of human experience. Religion is meant to describe things on the level of reality itself. And here we, ha we have a young man pulled between parents who don't see eye to eye on that. A few years ago, I got an email from a distraught mother who reached out and said, I, I'm struggling with my teenage son because my ex-husband who left the church is trying to pull him out with him. She was a Jewess who believed, as in Timothy's mother, but Timothy's father was a Greek who did not, and that was the situation of this young man. And she just said, would you please talk with him and try to help him navigate these? Because the things that brought my, my ex-husband out of the church He's now feeding to our son, and, and it's a struggle. Now, I said to her, I'd be, I'd be honored to speak to your son, but please understand as I do so, I will picture you in one corner of the room, but I will picture his father in the other, and I will say nothing to offend either party. Now, spiritually speaking, I, know, I hope you know I'm on your side. And for you out there, I hope I haven't made my discipleship difficult to detect. I believe with all my heart. But I also believe in the importance of relationships, and I do not want to get in the way of this relationship between father and son. So in the conversation that followed, it was amazing. An incredible young man. And I let him know, you've got a choice to make, don't you? And you see both options up close and personal. Now, I need you to understand where your father's coming from. So you can look at his decision with a degree of of empathy and understanding and compassion. 
These are some of the things that, as he brought up questions and issues and said, oh, yep, this is where your dad's coming from on that. And this is why this is a tricky issue. But this is why your mother has chosen belief, despite those difficulties. And you'll have the same choice to make. Again, you can go with dad. You can go with mom. I, I want those relationships to be healthy in both directions. But this, these are some of the things that, that perhaps your father is not seeing and again, trying to validate his choices and the experiences that he's had, but also helping him see that your mom does have a reason for the hope that is in her. And now the choice is yours. By the end of the conversation, by the way, this young Timothy was filled with hope and understood both of his parents a little bit better, understood the creation, fall, atonement paradigm, understood the proving of contraries, understood the decision that lay ahead, and had great hope in following his mother's example of faith, even while holding on to a, relation, a relationship of love with his father. And, and that's what we see in Timothy. Okay, amazing, amazing young man. We'll learn more about him in verse 2 and 3. And this, my, my admiration of this young man soars here. Verse 2, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So he's, he's known. Other people know this young man and realize he's as good as they come. He's well reported of. Now him would Paul have to go with him. So I, I'd love this young man to come with me as my junior companion. He would be such a blessing because he'll understand the people that we're trying to teach. When they say, oh, I don't know, I'm really drawn toward Greek culture. He's like, oh, I know. That's my dad's world. But you got to understand mom's world and the realities of the faith that she espoused. Well, Paul wants to bring him, but there's this issue. And they take care of it. Next line. He took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Now, the fact that, yes, a young man, but still a grown man would choose to be circumcised in order to begin this mission? Well, and you thought the MTC was hard. No, what, what Timothy is willing to go through amazes me. Now, on the one hand, some would say, well, why wasn't he circumcised on the eighth day? He has a Jewish mother after all. And in Judaism, the, the, it's, it's a principle called matrilineal descent, a great word to use in casual conversation. Matrilineal, mater, mother, that your religious identity comes down from your mother's side, not from your father's. And so as far as Timothy is concerned, a mother who's a Jew, she believes, well, he's supposed to take on the Abrahamic covenant himself. And the rite of, of passage for that, the token of that covenant, is circumcision. Why wasn't he circumcised? Well, I have a feeling Dad had something to say about that. And again, growing up in a Hellenized world where you're going to want to fit in. And if you're going to go exercise at the gymnasium, it's going to be obvious which side of the family you chose to, to follow belief-wise if you were circumcised. And most likely, Dad wouldn't, have, wouldn't stand for it. But for Timothy to choose to undergo this, when, wait a minute, didn't we just have the Jerusalem conference? Didn't we say that Gentile converts don't have to be circumcised, don't have to live the full ceremonial law of Moses? Everything else the Jerusalem conference decided on, Timothy's in 
I will not eat blood or strangled things. I will not commit fornication. I will not succumb to idolatry. I'm good on all of those things. But circumcision? I, I shouldn't have to. And he's right. And yet, if I'm going to be preaching among Jews, I can see the wisdom in not having anything about me they would consider offensive. I don't want to end things before they even start. I don't want to be the weak link in the chain of your mission, Paul, and I don't want to be a companion that you don't want people to, to know about. I will... I hate to say... I'll put it this way. Timothy was willing to do something that was beneath him. And that's what I hate to say. I don't want to, to refer to circumcision as something beneath him in terms of... I don't want to take any way, th anything away from Judaism. And there was a reason for that. It's a beautiful token of the covenant. But again, we're at this stage where Gentiles are coming in and we're making compromises and we're trying, but we're trying to honor both sides of the family, just like I said about this young man I talked to. And maybe this is the best example I can bring up. Remember last semester? Sorry, I'm a teacher. Remember at the beginning of the year or the first half when we were studying the Gospels and there was that story about the, the tax that Peter told the tax collectors, uh, of course Jesus pays taxes. And then he comes home and Jesus says, hey, I got a question about taxation for you, Peter. And he's like, man, you got ears everywhere. Uh, and Jesus said, should I have to pay taxes? The son of the king, do princes pay taxes or do subjects? And the answer was, well, yeah, Jesus, you shouldn't have to pay the tax. Correct, Peter. However, lest we should offend, and that's such a powerful phrase. Lest we should offend, I will do something that's quote-unquote beneath me. I'll do something that isn't required, but something that will make me less offensive to people who do take those things seriously. It's a live and let live kind of mentality. I'm not breaking a law to fit in with them. I'm just keeping something they consider a law to try to be a better neighbor and, and not rock the boat that I'm fishing from. <laughs> Speaking of fish, remember that's the end of the story? Peter, go down to the lake, draw, cast out a hook, and the first fish you bring in will have enough money in it, miraculously provided, to pay my tax and yours, since evidently you thought you were above it too. <laughs> well, Timothy did not think he was above this. He would have had a leg to stand on to say, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. It's not required of me. I don't have to. You're right. But how often do we do things that we don't have to in order to get along with others? We saw that last year in the Old Testament when Abraham, who owned all the land, was willing to divide the land and give Lot first choice, lest he should offend Remember that then, back then I said, it takes a big person to be small. And Abraham was a big person. Timothy is a big person. And in some ways, missionaries do just that when they go to a new country and embrace the culture and learn the language. And I just want to be one of them. And what do I need to be aware of so I don't commit any cultural faux pas, that I don't say anything that might be offensive 
And, and Timothy's doing the same thing. Well, interfaith conversations. How can I, what, what should I, how should I dress and how should I act if I go to a mosque, if I step into a synagogue? If I worship with a friend in their faith, I don't want to hurt any feelings inadvertently. And again, as I want with all my heart to share the gospel with others, I don't want to leave anybody with a bad taste in their mouth or offend them before I even begin. Timothy's being careful. He's, he's setting a good example here to us all. With that in mind then, verse 4 and 5, they take off for this mission. As they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. They're going around and, and reading the proclamation. They're, they're reading the letter from the first presidency and sacrament meeting, if you want to put it that way. And the decision that was reached at the Jerusalem conference in chapter 15, that's the decree for to keep. They're going and delivering them to every church. And it's blessing people. This is a an organized kingdom of God that's, that's spreading across the Mediterranean with central leadership back in Jerusalem, trying to make sure the living water gets to the end of every row. We're going to see the struggle that it is because of technology and transportation problems. Basically, the lack of technology and really, really slow transportation. And so when it, it's really going to be hard for a central leadership of apostles to be able to make sure that everybody understands how things are supposed to work. But that's the ideal, and you see it here in these verses. No wonder there is an establishment in the faith. It's a unity of the faith thereafter. And no wonder they're increasing in numbers daily. Verse 6 then, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and that's where the epistle to the Galatians will come, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. And by Asia, we just mean Western Asia Minor. When that's an odd phrase, forbidden, the Spirit said no? What? Isn't the Spirit usually telling you to go open your mouth and then filling it for you? Well, not here. It's, he's sealing those lips. Not only there, but after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, and that's in Northern Asia Minor, just south of the Black Sea. But again, the Spirit suffered them not. So what do they do? Well, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas which is a seaport on the northwestern corner of Asia Minor. Now, close your mouth instead of open it? Again, that seems so counterintuitive because it's the Spirit that wants more than anything for the gospel to be shared so that he can confirm the truth of it all. But for some reason, no, 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 not here. We don't know the reasons why, but it's good to know that the Spirit's in charge. And the same spirit that says, now's the time to speak, can also say, now's not the time to do so. This is like Esther. When Mordecai says to her, do not let them know your identity as a Jew. And then at a different moment, now's the time to reveal who you really are. Even Moroni's promise, if it be wisdom in God that they should receive them. Well, isn't... Doesn't God always want you to receive these things? Well, ultimately, yes. Eventually, yes. But perhaps right now is not the time. In fact, there is a fascinating place in the Book of Mormon where a young Mormon uh, who has a testimony as deep as they come wants to share it among a people who need that desperately. 
because of their own wickedness. And yet, because of their wickedness, Mormon is reined in. This is Mormon chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut. And it wasn't his fault. <laughs> he wanted to open it. He said, I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God. No difference in the next verse. I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, in Paul's case, we don't know the reasons why he was forbidden to preach, but the Spirit pointed him in a different direction. I should say this, too, before we move in that direction. The fact that the Spirit would have to rein him in lets you know what his default was. It was keep the mouth open and share the gospel everywhere you can. We saw that in the first missionary journey. We'll see it today in the second and third. And that ought to be our default position too. If we're not sure whether or not to share the gospel, then share it. Keep the mouth open. But be open to those times where the Spirit will rein you in and pull you back and warn you, now's not the right time. Wait for this. The time will come. Now, whose time was it? Look at verse 9 and 10. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. He was a visionary man, remember? That's what got him to go see Ananias in the first place. It was the vision he had of the Lord on the road to Damascus. He's led by this divine light, and so it's happening here. In this vision, there stood a man of Macedonia. And Macedonia is what now we'd see as northeastern Greece. So you're going to have to cross that top tip of the Mediterranean, cross the Aegean Sea from Asia Minor into Macedonia. And he sees this Macedonian man who prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. What a powerful invitation. What a beautiful, heartfelt plea. You're there. We're here. Please come and come to help us. We cannot do certain things on our own. Well, that's all Paul needed. After he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. I love that immediate obedience. And in some ways, knowing Paul's personality, no wonder it was immediate. Keeping his mouth shut would have been the hardest part of his mission, most likely. And when he's finally told, go this side, and then you can go speak, well, I'm there then. But not only is he there, did you catch the pronouns? Usually it's he, Paul, and they, those missionaries. But here we saw a we. Immediately we endeavored to go. We assuredly knew, we gathered that the Lord had called us. Do you see Luke poking through the narrative? I don't know if he just they, if Paul picked him up on the way somewhere. Remember when Luke was writing to his friend Theophilus and explaining to him, this is how I'm doing this and why I'm trying to gather this material to write the gospel of Jesus Christ as well as the Acts of the Apostles. And this, this two-part volume that he's writing, he's part of it now. He's on this mission, and it's we that are doing these things. Keep an eye out for Luke as he pokes through the narrative now and then. He's still with him in verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia. And the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, that's where we get the epistle to the Philippians, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. 
I imagine that abiding period was probably trying to get a sense of the area, figuring out how we're going to establish the Christian church here. What is life like in Philippi and how best to approach the, the people here? Well, this is how they started. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Now, remember in the Gospel of Luke, he included women more than anyone else. I wonder if it's a result of this kind of experience, where he's out there with the Apostle Paul on this mission, and he sees the, their greatest success was among sister saints. There was something about them that they were drawn to the spirituality that Jesus invited, was inviting them into. This is, not, this is still the Jewish Sabbath that is happening, but they didn't go to the synagogue like they normally did. Instead, they went to a place of prayer. Uh, down by the river, living water, flowing free. And here these wonderful women, devout, worshiping God, praying there, looking for something better. Rivers do bring life and growth after all. What a perfect place for Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas, this group of mission companions, to go. Now, when they're there, notice who they meet. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. Thyatira, by the way, we're going to need to remember because that's one of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And so thank you, Lydia, for helping to establish such, such a strong branch there that it's still going to be on John's radar when he's writing the Revelation. Well, this seller of purple worshipped God and heard us. And here's why. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now that word attended is an interesting one. By the way, in my own scripture study, language is often a burning bush to me that lets me know I ought to turn aside to see. And to me, when she attended unto these things, in common English, to attend means to be present for something. Like you attended school that day, or I attended church. I'm here, physically present. That's not what the Greek word here means. And you don't have to speak Greek to do this. There are so many wonderful resources online where you can just look, what was the Greek word and what are some other translations of it? Now, some synonyms and so on. And in this case, attended is not mere physical presence. It means to pay attention, to give heed, to focus on something. We talk about, I mean, a flight attendant isn't just someone who shows up on the plane. The flight attendant attends to the needs of all the passengers. And Lydia is attending to the message that these missionaries are giving her. Laser focused. Why? Because the Lord had opened her heart. Now, it might require some divine heart opening, because had her heart been focused on other things, she's called a seller of purple here. And purple was one of the rarest colors, because it was so hard to come by. If I remember correctly, it had something to do with like a, a sea mollusk, and you had to get this and then extract some kind of thing that would be used for the dye. Purple was the color of royalty. In fact, in the famous book by Edward Gibbons about the fall of the Roman Empire, so often when he referred to Caesar, he would simply call, them, call him the purple. The purple became the word for, for Roman leadership, for, for Caesars, for kings. And 
She was most likely a successful and wealthy woman. We'll see her gathering this house church into her house. So she must have been well enough off to have that kind of space. A seller of purple. And yet she sees value in spiritual things even more than the temporal things that she was, that she was selling. In fact, if purple is meant for kings, how fitting that a seller of purple would be one of the first in this city to recognize who really ought to be wearing it. Do you remember the Roman soldiers clothed Jesus in a purple robe to mock him? Well, this is the female counterpart, but doing it in the right way, recognizing I have been selling purple to the wrong people all along. And the true royalty is the King of Kings, even Jesus Christ himself. She resonates with that and embraces it with all her heart. In verse 15, when she was baptized, and again, to, to lower herself in the water, Symbolic of lowering herself, most likely, in, as far as reputation is concerned. Lowering herself in the eyes of those around her. But willing to do so because she knew it was true. When she was baptized, and her household, so her family, probably her servants, this whole group joins. And when she did, she besought us. And to beseech is to beg, to invite insistently, to urge them. And she said to them in that urging, if ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then please come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And to constrain means to urge also. But the Greek there suggests something even stronger, like to compel by force. Lydia won't take no for an answer. Oh yeah, that's why I say she was probably a very successful businesswoman. It's like, no, no, you've got to get this purple. It's the best shade. Oh, you're, you're almost royalty. You're rich enough to be to afford this. Ah, she is an insistent, <laughs> insistent woman. And now she's insisting that the apostles stay. Do you remember when the disciples on the road to Emmaus begged Jesus, abide with us, tis eventide. Well, here she is doing it to these messengers of the Lord. In verse 16, we then see a, a literary foil here. We just met a woman who believes and embraces the gospel. Now we're going to meet another woman with, well, with a different background and a different part of the story. Verse 16, it came to pass as we went to prayer, just like they'd been going to this place of prayer before, we start the stories parallel. Here's where they diverge. A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us. Lydia had a certain spirit, a spirit of discernment, recognizing messengers of the true God. Well, this woman, a young woman, a damsel, has a different spirit. It's a spirit of divination, to divine, to prophesy, to see the future. Well, is this a true spirit or a false? Well, let's see. Because of this spirit, this damsel of divination brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And so now we see another parallel. Lydia would have been a fairly wealthy woman. Well, she definitely dealt with wealthy people, and so does this damsel. But it's not her money. It's not, she's not the one getting wealthy here. It's her masters, and they get gained by her soothsaying. Well, the same woman, the same damsel, followed Paul and us. Thank you, Luke, for coming on this part of the journey, too. 
And she cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And remember, the way was the common term for the Christians at the time. Yes, they started to be known as Christians in Antioch during this time period. But for the most part, if Jesus is the way, then following his covenant path, that's the way too. And so Christianity is the way. And she, she recognizes this. These true messengers show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. Wow, we've got, we have someone who is bearing testimony of us. That's wonderful. Well, is it? This is a chance for us to test that old saying that all publicity is good publicity. Does Paul agree with that? We're about to find out. Because the struggle here is, this is a true witness in terms of what she's saying, but is she a true witness in terms of who she is and the spirit that is motivating her? She's saying all the right words, but is she saying them for the right reasons? And Paul here is going to be caught between someone who's backing me up. She's talking the talk, but is she walking the walk? Is she living in such a way that her testimony can be taken seriously by other converts? And on the one hand, maybe they would take her seriously. She has the spirit of divination. Her masters make much money off of her, so she's popular. She's known in town, and people will... This is like the psychic hotline. This is the person who fills all of the fortune cookies. This is the tarot card reader, or the palm reader, or someone who... This is like the Oracle, the oracle of Delphi. And they're going to come to her and pay her master, please tell me what my future should, should ent will entail. And wow, to have somebody like that on my side saying, oh, I see in your future a Christian baptism because these are messengers of the true God. Well, I could see this going either way, especially if I only knew this spirit of divination. Is it a true one or a false one? Are these masters exploiting her because of her spiritual gifts. And that still happens in our day. Do people look for those that have an open heart and a believing mind and have them fall victim to scams? Or are there ways that, oh, I could gain in notoriety because of my gift for fill in the blank? Well, or is this a false spirit that for one reason or another is saying something true. you got to sneak in a half-true now and then to, to keep credibility. Well, we're about to find out. Notice in verse 18 how Paul reacts. As far as he's concerned, this is not good publicity. So he ends it. He says, Paul being grieved, turn and said to the Spirit. And notice, he's speaking to the Spirit, not to the person that, that the Spirit is possessing. In fact, it's kind of wild to look at the Greek there. When it talked about uh, earlier in verse 16 about this spirit of divination, it doesn't say divination. It just calls this spirit python. Python as in snake. Because in Greek mythology, there was a serpent that guarded the oracle of Delphi. Uh, Apollo goes and slays this serpent as part of his, his adventures. But it's interesting that now we know it's a false spirit that it's this serpent slithering into the Garden of Eden here, trying to lead people astray with half-truths. And this spirit needs to be cast out of this damsel's garden. So, being grieved, Paul turns to this spirit and says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
and he's powerless to resist that authority, he came out the same hour. Paul did not need a false spirit vouching for his true authority. This was like Jesus rebuking the evil spirits during the go- in, in the Gospels, where so often those evil spirits knew exactly who he was, recognized him, and, and in a way bore testimony. Have you come to torment us before the time? O oh, Jesus of Nazareth, O oh, Jesus, Son of God. And Jesus would have none of that. I do not need you. I don't need, light does, need, does not need darkness to bear witness of it. And so to free the people from any kind of confusion and to free her from, evil, from this evil spirit and to free her from evil masters that are just using her for their personal gain, he cast this devil out. In verse 19, that's not good news for her masters. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And again, notice the location. This is a marketplace. The whole story seems to revolve around profiteering, about making a business of religion and the economic side of things. They're in the marketplace, these masters with their hopes of gain having evaporated. They brought them to the magistrates saying, these men being Jews. And so let's throw that out. Let's bring up their religious identity and and pass judgment on them just for that. They do exceedingly trouble our city. I mean, this is not self-serving. This isn't just about our business plan. No, no, no. We're good citizens here, and they aren't. They are troubling the whole city. They teach customs, which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And that's patently false, because Paul himself is a Roman, and he'll bring that up on occasion during these missions. In fact, it's one of the underlying themes of the book of Acts. Luke wants the Romans to know they have nothing to fear in Christianity. Again, by the time he writes this book, the Christian church is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And is that cause for concern? The book of Acts will say repeatedly, it isn't. It's totally fine. And yet these businessmen, oh, no, no, no. We're going to pit Jew against Roman. Let's make this a matter of identity politics and say these people don't fit with us. And so let's other them. Let's push them out. They trouble our city because of their customs. Their culture is different than ours. They will get us, they are are suggesting things that are illegal. And again, that was not true. You're just angry that your, your business model will no longer work. In fact, you're angry because the real thing has come to expose your counterfeit. One of my favorite things about this story is the the juxtaposition of priesthood and priestcraft. And when they realize that our craft has now been exposed, that this man has real authority. In some ways, this is a Paul version of what we saw from Peter and Simon the sorcerer. When Simon the sorcerer wants to buy the power that Peter obviously has, to be able to give somebody the Holy Ghost, this would be amazing. I'd be back in the game. And no, 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 thy money perish with thee. Well, that's what's happening here under Paul's direction. People will now know not just the words of this damsel of divination, but they have seen the power of God work through a true messenger of God in Paul.
Now, how are the people going to respond, though? They've, they've heard something from this woman. They've seen something amazing from Paul. They hear these trumped-up charges. What's the response going to be? Verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates rent off their clothes. There's this mock horror over the supposed illegality of Paul's teaching. So how dare you do such things? And they commanded to beat them. This is now physical violence. And not just a slap across the face. No, keep reading. When they had laid many stripes upon them. Is this a scourging taking place? Oh, Paul is following the example of Jesus in both preaching the gospel and in suffering for it. Many stripes laid upon him, after which they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. There's no chance for escape here. Makes you wonder if Christianity has a growing reputation for miraculous jailbreaks. Uh, Peter got out twice, right? John got out. How's this going to work? And so sure enough, keep them safe. How about the inner prison? So we've got some extra layers of protection here. Put their feet in the stocks and hold them fast. There's no way they're going get to get out of this one. Now, Paul's response, though, unfazed by it all, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Midnight, this is the moment of greatest darkness. And yet, what are they doing? Rejoicing in the light of the Lord. They're praying and not praying for deliverance. They just seem to be praying in gratitude because they're singing praises unto God. This is not a funeral dirge. These are not psalms of lamentation. These are songs of praise. Gratitude to God to be counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's what Peter and John had done during their imprisonment, right? During, uh, in the aftermath of their own physical suffering for Jesus. Paul is cut from the same cloth, and though that cloth is bloodied because of the opposition of these outsiders, the fact that Paul could shed any blood for Jesus' sake is such a fitting token of all the blood that Jesus had shed for him and for us all. I love what they're doing here. Keep reading, though. The prisoners heard them. So even this moment becomes a missionary opportunity for Paul and Silas. Let's sing out and let people know that we have cause to rejoice despite our imprisonment. And in that moment, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And that's quite the earthquake. It's not just the walls come tumbling down. Their chains are broken. Their fetters are loosed from off their hands and feet. Now, as a result of that, the great news for the prisoners, not so great for the keeper of the jail. And sure enough, the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, assuming, therefore, that all these prisoners have escaped on his watch, what does he decide to do? He drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Do you understand what this jailer is about to do? He's about to commit suicide, and he's doing it to save his superior officers the trouble. I mean, all these prisoners escaped on my watch, and they're not going to care about excuses about earthquakes. 
I'm going to be held responsible. And so avoid the court-martial, avoid the public execution. I'm just going to end things right here. This is reminiscent in some ways of the experience of the keepers of the tomb. Do you remember how they would only lie and say that we slept on the job and the apostles came and whisked away the body of Jesus if they were paid large money? Because this is putting my life on the line. And we see that seriously here. In this jailer's case, it's over for me. And yet, verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Part of me wonders, how did he even know what the jailer was about to do? Did he just assume? Had he been spiritually guided? But amazing that in this moment, he's not thinking about himself and his own deliverance. He's thinking about this jailer, the man who's imprisoned him. And how is he going to respond to this situation? What, what's it, what does this look like from his perspective? Good news for us, horrible news for him, but it doesn't have to be horrible. So don't do anything. Don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Now, it's in that moment that I picture the jailer. Wait, 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 what? You're still here when nothing is keeping you? You guys are the dumbest prisoners I've ever guarded because I can't guard you, and yet you're staying put? Why didn't you run? To which I can picture Paul saying to him, because we weren't the ones imprisoned. You were. We've been on the right side of the bars this whole time. Why do you think we've been singing praises? Because we know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We have been, I know what life is like on that side of the bar, that side of the cell. I know what it's like to be trapped in ignorance, to be fettered by your lack of faith. I know the bondage of sin. And those chains don't just fall off on their own. They require the help of a deliverer. And having been delivered ourselves, we are here to deliver you. To me, there's something so beautiful about this moment because of Paul's recognition of the freedom he has long enjoyed. Regardless of physical bars and chains all around him. I actually had a student years ago in seminary, great kid, fun personality, who said at one point, you know, I used to think the church was restrictive. I couldn't stand all those commandments that I had to keep. And then I realized that when I go to the zoo, I'm grateful for the bars. And I just thought that is a such an ingenious way of describing things. At the zoo, you never see people grabbing the bars and like, let me in, let me in. No. If anything, it's the lions, tigers, and bears that are grabbing those bars saying, let me out, let me out. And I think it's in the letter of in one of the epistles of Peter. He describes Satan as a lion going about seeking whom he may devour. It's the adversary that's on the wrong side of the bars. For Paul, to see that, sense that, say that to the jailer. Why don't you come out of your cell and into our incredible freedom? Freedom through faith in Christ, the great deliverer. And that's exactly what this jailer is going to do. 
I, I wonder sometimes, I worry that we f sometimes feel trapped as if we were on the wrong side of the bars. That we feel that we are confined by our covenants when in reality we are safe within the sanctuary of standards, keeping us from the dangers that lurk on the other side of those bars. Verse 29, what does the jailer do? <laughs> Shocked by this, he called for a light. After all, he was the one in darkness. He sprang in. Sure enough, it's not the, the prisoners that are springing out. No, he wants to be on the same side of the bars as those that are supposedly captive. He came trembling. So it wasn't just the earth that was quaking here. And he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out in a way they'd been out the whole time. But he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He immediately knew that they had something and he didn't. How could you act this way despite your difficulties? Where does this positivity come from? And in answer to his question, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And not just you, and thy house. Remember Lydia's whole house had joined the church. They're offering this same collective covenant to this jailer. They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. This is not solitary salvation they're offering. As President Nelson has said, exaltation is a family affair. And so Paul wants to preach to the whole house. And so he will. But did you notice he does it by speaking unto them the word of the Lord? It makes me wonder what that word entails. Because if this is a Gentile jailer, if this is a Roman soldier, for example, then Jewish scripture isn't going to mean anything. The word of the Lord, what, what is that? Or is that simply the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul has learned it from living apostles, from those who knew? And let us teach you those things. Is it part of what he learned from the Lord on the road to Damascus? Is it things he learned from Ananias as the scales of darkness were falling from his eyes? Whatever this word of the Lord entailed, this is the truth that will set you free, jailer. You are an expert in withholding freedom from people. Don't get me wrong, I know it's your job. But our job, our mission, is to preach deliverance to the captives. And that's been you. Well, verse 33, the jailer's response to this message, he took them the same hour of the night, unhesitatingly, immediate action, and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his, straightway, which again means immediately. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. There's something beautifully fitting about this jailer's reaction. Let me wash you, since you just washed me. I'll wash away the blood and dirt from your suffering, but you have washed away my sins in the waters of baptism. Let me bring you into my house, since you've brought me into the household of faith. Let me set meat before you, since you have set meat before me. You have fed me with the bread of life, feast of fat things, 
the banquet table of the Lord. I love the conversion of this jailer. It's, it's my favorite story in this, in this chapter. And the fact that it ends with such rejoicing on a night that, for all intents and purposes, should have been nothing but mourning. I mean, Paul and Silas could have been complaining about their imprisonment. And even with their, their deliverance, this poor family would have been mourning over the loss of their loved one who would have just committed suicide in the prison that he couldn't keep. Well, instead, there's rejoicing all the way through. And yet again, how will everyone else react? Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants saying, let those men go. Now, I have no idea why. Had they come to their senses? Had they realized that what they were doing was wrong, that they had no legal leg to stand on for this unlawful imprisonment? Well, they send the sergeants, and the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace, which is ironic because they've been in peace the whole time. No need to tell us, oh, now you can leave. We could have left last night, okay? And Paul wasn't willing to take that get-out-of-jail-free card anyway. Notice what he does. Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily, or privately, that is? Oh, nay, verily. But let them come themselves and fetch us out. Now, what Paul, Paul's a genius here. And what he's doing here, especially by invoking his own Roman citizenship, he's going to do this later. We'll see that next week. But to invoke it here among people that are going to now be very concerned, oh no, we imprisoned a Roman? And he pointed it out, it's, we did it openly, so everybody knows it now, and we did it when they were uncondemned. So this was an illegal imprisonment of a Roman citizen, and we could be held responsible for that. Are they about to pull out their swords and fall upon them uh, when Caesar finds out? Well, not quite, but there would be cause for concern here. Now, what Paul is doing here that's amazing to me, he sees this as an opportunity to continue spreading the gospel. Because this way, they will recognize that we are here on higher moral ground. That we were willing to lower ourselves to the level of imprisonment. And we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have had to do that. Now, public opinion can begin to turn in our favor when they realize that we have suffered innocently and have done nothing to retaliate. That was the approach of Gandhi. That was the approach of Martin Luther King Jr. That was the approach of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And to hold to that higher moral ground is a powerful thing. But they're not just doing it for themselves. Because notice how the chapter ends. Verse 38, the sergeants told these things unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. So sure enough, they know exactly what Paul's getting at here. Like, gulp, we've done something wrong. And so they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. Like, <laughs> so sorry. Uh, sorry about the stripes, the scourging, the imprisonment. Uh, but hey, no harm, no foul. Well, I guess there was harm. I guess there is foul. Uh-oh. Would you, would you mind leaving? Here, let us help you, send you on your way. But notice what Paul does instead. He doesn't just leave town as they had hoped. Instead, they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. 
You see, her house has now become a house church, just like Mark's mother, Mary, back in Jerusalem. Amazing, these women opening their homes, spreading out the wings of Mother Hen to let people come and gather therein. So he, Paul, enters the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and only then they departed. Now notice again the genius of Paul. It's not just that he wants to say goodbye to his friends one last time. It's not just that he wants to see them before he ultimately departs, like the magistrates and sergeants had hoped. No, I imagine most likely with magistrates and sergeants in tow. Like, oh yeah, we'll leave town, but not before we go see the Christians. Because I want you to see the Christians. I want you to be well aware of Lydia's house and those who gather there. Because I'm going to pass to them my IOU. Your IOU, he could say. I've stood on this higher moral ground. You owe me, and you're, you fear my Roman citizenship. If I stayed, I imagine you would treat me incredibly kindly from this moment on. But since I have a mission to perform and cannot stay, I want you to treat the Christians with that same deference and respect. I love what Paul is doing here. It really is a masterful idea to protect those he is leaving behind so that this fledgling group of Christian converts will be able to grow in a, in a measure of safety. With that, we see chapter 16 end and chapter 17 begin, and this is one of the best chapters of Paul's missionary journeys because he finally gets to Athens. Now, there's a few places he needs to, to pass through on the way. And so begin in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and those are cities in northeastern Macedonia, modern-day Greece, they came to Thessalonica. And yes, that's where the epistle to the Thessalonians will be sent where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, so this is his normal approach to missionary work, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Now there we see Paul's missionary approach as well as his missionary message. Now, he knows about the Jerusalem conference. He knows that the pendulum is swinging toward the Gentiles, but he's still a Jew by birth himself, a Jew by background also, and, and he, a Jew by original belief. And he knows that Jewish messianic prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so, again, let's start there at least. Let's give them a chance. And three Sabbaths in a row he's doing that. But notice how he's doing it. He's reasoning with them. And he's doing it out of Scripture. Paul would have been an amazing debater. He was an incredible scriptorian, trained under the tutelage of Gamaliel himself. He would have been a good Bible basher, if that is what his personality led him toward. Here he's not bashing, but he's reasoning. And he's building on the common beliefs of his audience Again, the word of the Lord to the, Jewish, or to the Roman jailer would have been different. But here, the word of the Lord to the Jews was Jewish scripture, Hebrew Bible. And he's opening and alleging. 
Now, to open is, seems pretty obvious. Let's open the scriptures and do more than that. Let's open the eyes of your understanding. That's what Jesus did with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know your scriptures, but do you really? Let's open them up and really see how they all bore witness of me. Okay? His patriarchal blessing, in a way. But also the word alleging, in modern English, that's a weak word. We just allege something. We suppose, we assume, I allege that Jesus is the Christ. That's not the Greek original here. The Greek suggests to set it forth, but in such a way that it proves points. It gives evidence. It's more of that reasoning that he's doing in the scriptures. And did you catch the specific reasoning he's offering? Christ must needs have suffered so he could then rise from the dead. That was a big tripping point for Jewish hearers. Because if Jesus was really the Messiah, then where's the Messianic age? We're still struggling under the Roman yoke. It doesn't seem like anything's changed here on the ground. To which Paul would say, but everything's changed in heaven. And that does change everything on earth. Christ didn't come to free us from Rome. He came to free us from sin and death, which is why he had to suffer for sins and succumb to death so he could then overcome it for us all. It needed to be that way. So do not think that, I know it's Jewish understanding that hanging on a tree means you're cursed. That wasn't the case for Jesus. Well, in a way it was. It was for him to bear our curses. He'll explain this in some of his epistles later on. No, this, the crucifixion does not disqualify the Christ. If anything, it qualifies him because he has conquered sin and death. Trust me on that. It's all right here in Scripture. Let me open, let me allege, let me prove the point. And some will believe. In fact, look at verse 4 and 5. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And to consort with simply means to join. So they joined Paul and Silas. They are joining the church. And not only those Jews who saw the fulfillment of their scripture, but also of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. Now, of course, there's going to be mixed reactions. There'll be others that don't believe at all. But the fact that they would find success among People of status, this is among the spiritually inclined, there's the devout Greeks, but also these influential women, chief women, people cut from the same purple cloth as Lydia, okay? Amazing to see the growth of the church on, on the shoulders of converts such as these. Now, if those are the believers, how about the unbelievers? Next verse. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, and we've seen that word a time or two, they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I've always laughed thinking, that would be a great name for a band. Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. And those people gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now the house of Jason. Jason's a very Greek name, like Jason and the Argonauts. Is he one of these devout Greeks who believes? Well, if so, then he's in danger now. His house is being assaulted. We're going to get rid of this house so there can be no house church here. We don't want these, these apostles among us. We don't want believers among us. Get them out. And they're turning to these lewd fellows. They're turning to the baser sort. The Greek word for that, by the way, that was a burning bush I had to turn aside and see. 
And the word there, it's interesting. It can be translated like rabble rousers. Uh, it can be translated like troublemakers or even agitators. The actual Greek word is, has the word agora in it as, at its root. And the agora is the marketplace, right? The, the public sphere. Think about the marketplace of those masters of the damsel of divination. And they're so angry because here our, our public persona is going to suffer. Our economics are going to go in the wrong way. And so here, these, the baser sort, the vulgar, the commoners, but, but also the ones that are kind of out there among the people, wandering around the agora to keep their finger on the pulse of people and try to affect people in a certain direction. These are influencers, as we would say in our day. And the social media realm tends to be our modern agora the marketplace of ideas and ideologies, and to see people jumping in there to rile up the people, especially in the world of anti-Mormonism, there, there are certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. <laughs> there are plenty of people who are trying to assault the house of anyone who believes and trying to stir up the people so that the people will do their dirty work. If I can get enough people up in arms and enough comments in the comment section where people start to worry, am I in the wrong and are they in the right? Well, hold on. Verse 6, when they found them not, because Paul and Silas aren't there anymore, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people. The Greek for troubled there is to stir up. They're still doing that. They're stirring up the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Now, I don't know if I could think of a better job description of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ than what these, these people just accuse them of doing, of turning the world upside down. That reputation had preceded them because that's what they're describing, what we've heard them do in other places. Those ah, men who have turned the world upside down have come into our town and they're trying to flip things. I picture them taking society, culture, and like a box you're trying to clean out, just dumping the whole thing out so you can start sifting, sifting through it and decide what needs to stay and what needs to go. Yes, these apostles turn the world upside down. And yet, on the other hand, I wonder if, if they're turning it right side up. Because the world, in a way, has turned itself upside down. That's what Isaiah said would happen. That people would call good evil and evil good and set, call light darkness and darkness light and set bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It is a topsy-turvy world we live in. And sometimes it is hard to know which way is up. Think about the term vertigo. And vertigo is when you, can, you can't tell. You're so out of whack, out of balance. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. Elder Robert D. Hales used this in a conference talk as an analogy. 
And yes, it's about flight. You'd assume that it would be Elder Uchtdorf, but Elder Hales flew also and beat Elder Uchtdorf to the punch on this one. And he talked about being learning as a being trained as a fighter pilot. And there'd be times he'd be up in a cockpit with his trainer, and he'd have some kind of shield over his eyes so he couldn't see. And as long as the the flight instructor did it incredibly gradually, he could turn the whole plane upside down without alerting the ears, without knowing that this happened. And, and pretty soon you're flying upside down and you don't know it. And then he'd say to the pilot in training, okay, remove the shield. You can see, take the stick and go for it. And if you're up amidst the clouds and can't tell, then you, you pull the stick back and think you're going up and no, you're plummeting down to the earth. Once you realize it, can you imagine how much you'd freak out? Well, pretty interesting training. Well, we live in a world where the adversary is trying to force vertigo onto all of us. And to be called evil when we're simply trying to hold to the right. Yeah, it's topsy-turvy. And thank heaven for apostles who are coming to turn things right side up in turning the world upside down. But like I said, the worldly don't like that. So verse 9 and 10, when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Now, taking security means that Jason posted bond. It's as if he paid the bail for, for Paul and for Silas. Uh, we can't find them, and we want to imprison them. We want to take them in, and Jason's like, well, well you can't, but here, I'll pay for their freedom. And if, I, if we don't bring them back, then I guess I lose that bail money. Well, he was totally fine with that. His next verse, the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So it's not going to slow them down at all. <laughs> They're just going to pick up right where they left off in a different city. But they, that does mean Jason is left holding the bag, a bag that's now empty because he's paid for their bail. I love, though, again, in the midst of this, these stories about merchandise and marketplaces, and you're there in the Agora, and, and these masters that are so sad to lose money on their priest craft. And now Jason, totally fine with losing money that he's posted for Paul and Silas. Now, if I stand to, to lose something temporal so someone else can, gain to, to, can stand to gain something spiritual, then that's a marvelous investment. Consider it consecration. And so he does. Well, in this next location then, they're in Berea, at the synagogue of the Jews. Pick up the story, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And we're not talking noble in terms of social standing. Uh, this is not some kind of ranking of society. Rather, more noble here means more receptive, more open-minded, we could say. The Greek term, a better translation would be more good-natured. Okay? And that, that good nature, that open mind, we see in the next line. They received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. As a result of their study, therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So again, thank you, Luke, for always pointing out the sister saints that come gathering to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And how did they do it? This is a great principle. Would, if we would be more noble, if we would be more good-natured, we would get past our prejudices. Prejudice is a great word. It just means prejudice, prejudge. And I've already passed judgment even before the court case is opened. I've heard rumors about you. I've heard stories. Oh, in the church I grew up in, it said that they said that Mormons weren't Christians or Mormons didn't believe in the Bible. And, and so, yeah, I'm not even going to entertain the possibility. Oh, may you be more like these people in Berea than like the people in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians were the closed-minded, like, nope, you're not us, and we're not you, and, and we're not even going to listen, not even entertain the possibility. Whereas the people here, well, let's, let's hear them out first. We'll approach them with readiness of mind, not, not gullibility. We're not just going to roll over and join their church, but we'll hear them out at least. And I wish we could do that more. Religiously, politically, ideologically, just listen, be of an open mind, a ready mind. I want to learn and I'll discern between what I agree and what I don't, what I think is true and what I think is false. I'll try to filter those things through, through the spirit, but to receive that word with readiness of mind and then to search the scriptures to see if it's so. I love that part. The scriptures we call the standard works because they're the standard by which we judge our works or the works of others. Other churches call them the canon. And canon comes from a Greek word for measuring stick. It's the stick that we measure things against. Does it measure up? And so when I'm hearing things in the news, when I'm sitting in, in grad school and learning philosophy, I approach it with an open mind. I hope that makes me more good-natured than others that are immediately opposed to everything. But I do compare it to what I know to be true from the Word of God. And when it doesn't measure up, I opt to stay on the Lord's side of, of that conversation. The Scriptures will, will lead us to find truth. It's, the, it's our measuring stick. It's our canon. But notice what they're up against. Verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica, and that's where he just left, right? The ones that are still holding Jason's bail money. When those Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, which is just west of Thessalonica, it's like their, their, their neighbors. Well, they came thither also and stirred up the people, just like they've been doing back home. Part of me just wants to go, come on, Thessalonians. Don't you have anything better to do than follow these apostles around trying to nip their, their, their seeds in the bud, trying to stop them from preaching. Reminds me of those punks, uh, those Pharisees back in Jesus' day that, that popped up out of the grain field like, like whack-a-mole. I gotcha! They were eating on the Sabbath. It's like, do you have nothing better to do? And here are these Thessalonian Jews following them into Berea. Well, then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. It's like, again, others looking out for his safety more than he did. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. That way they'll still have some backup. Some preaching can still go on. It seems to be most of the, it seems to be Paul who's targeted more than anybody else. So let's get Paul to safety. And so they do. They that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed they departed. Did you catch Paul's instruction at the end there? 
I mean, he's just been dropped off at the bus stop <laughs> there in Athens. But he tells his, his traveling companions that when you get back home to Berea, please tell Silas and Timotheus to get down here as quickly as possible. I mean, I'm in Athens. I'm going to need some backup. I'm more witnesses than the one. To be at the center of the philosophical universe. I mean, I know that Rome is the capital of the political empire. But Athens is still the capital of the philosophical one, the ideological one. Remember the Hellenization of the Mediterranean world? Uh, and to, to see Socrates and Plato and Aristotle with very long shadows still affecting the way people think, the way they view life. This is the, the, the Gentile perspective on things. This is Timothy's Greek father. And now Paul is going right into the epicenter of it all. So yes, send them down as quickly as possible. But they're not here yet, so what's Paul going to do? And is Paul going to wait around and, and, well, once my companions come, then it will, I'll be in a position to be able to share the gospel. In the meantime, I mean, I'm in Athens. Let's go do some sightseeing. Well, that's not, that's not Paul at all. It's Paul that has to be told forcibly by the Spirit, no, you're not allowed to preach the gospel at this point. And here he's looking around going, okay, the Spirit's not holding me back, then I'm going forward. And so he does. Verse 16 and 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, and yes, waiting impatiently, I'm sure, his spirit was stirred in him. He couldn't sit still. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, and wholly given suggests that these people are utterly idolatrous. They are totally given over to worldly ways. And again, in Athens, that would be hard not to. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he's not slowing down, not stopping, not waiting for anything. Instead, he's disputing. Now that word has negative connotations as far as contention and disputation is concerned. And President Nelson just clarified for us, we've got to avoid that. Well, it seems that Paul does... We'll have evidence of that in a moment when we see him, him actually disputing with people. The Greek word simply means to reason, uh, to use logic and rationality and argumentation to try to make your point. That's what he'd been doing before in other, in other cities, and people were then taking that reason and comparing it to Scripture and trying to make sense of this. Paul is an incredible example of balancing the mind and the heart. And you want to go philosophical? Oh, I can do that, believe me. You want to reason and point to Scripture and explain things? I'm happy to approach you in a neck-up kind of conversation. Address the mind. But I don't limit myself to that. Paul was equally gifted in approaching the heart and allowing the Spirit to confirm truth. We have to be able to balance those in our own conversations. I've had a lot of conversations with people and that make it feel like the Tin Man and the Scarecrow are, are talking with each other in, in The Wizard of Oz. And unfortunately, it's my conversation partner that acts like the Tin Man and accuses me of being the Scarecrow. Remember, the Tin Man has no heart. And they're acting as if that were the case. I do not want to, do not bear your testimony to me. That's not going to work. I don't believe, that's just confirmation bias, that's just pulling my emotional heartstrings, I, that's not going to work. There's no spirit as far as I'm concerned. Oh, well, that's, that's going to make things a little difficult, I'll admit. 
But hey, you want to have a head-only conversation? That's fine. I've joked sometimes, it feels like they like you're at the dentist when you're getting x-rays and they put this that lead shield over your chest. Uh, and and it feels like, okay, your your heart is now impenetrable. I'm not allowed to address it. Well, that's fine. I can try to give you a reason for the hope that is in you. We can go down the 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 path of rationality alone. But again, there's this underlying, almost subtle accusation that, oh, you believers, the heart's the only thing you've got. And the only reason you're holding on to your flimsy faith is because of some emotional elevation you felt at some point. That's all it is. And thus they're accusing me or us of being scarecrows with no brain. No, I'm not a scarecrow, but I'm not a tin man either. Nor am I a cowardly lion. <laughs> and with courage, I will address you with both head and heart. Paul will do both of those. We'll see more of that as we move forward. But here in Athens particularly, I will reason with you. I don't, I don't want it to turn into disputation. I don't want it to turn into some kind of contentiousness. And so my heart will still be there to try to help balance things out and to give you the benefit of your doubts and, and try to help navigate this together. But this is going to be his, his missionary approach. By the way, when we get to the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians especially, we will see Paul really wrestle with this head-heart thing because he doesn't write a letter to the saints in Athens that we, that we have. But Corinth is the closest city that does get a letter from Paul to Athens. Corinth is like Athens Jr. <laughs> and a lot of the same philosophical challenges exist there. And so hold on to that. But when we get there, please think back to Acts 17 and Paul's experience in Athens. But one last thing before we go to the next verse. The fact he can't wait should inspire us to, be, to, to exercise some divine impatience ourselves. And unless the Holy Ghost reigns you in, then move forward with faith and share the gospel. Give people a chance. When I, I told you the story a couple weeks ago about Acts chapter 3 and my experience with Elder Carmack on my mission when he told me to look at those verses and teach everything I possibly could. What amazes me about the, that experience? For me, it was another day in the mission field. And I assumed it was another day of preaching the gospel and training missionaries for a general authority. But no, he was on vacation. At least he was supposed to be. It was a time when he was supposed to be... I mean, general authorities have such busy lives. They're constantly working, working, serving, serving. And he was going to be... I mean, I heard that Puerto Rico was a great place for a vacation. I didn't know that as a missionary, but... But yeah, go hang out in the Caribbean for a while. Well, I've learned that general authorities aren't very good at taking vacations. Preachers got to preach. And so he called our mission president and said, I know there's not enough time to gather a mission conference. This was not on the schedule. But I'm in town and I would love to meet with some of your missionaries to teach them. Here he is, like Paul, waiting, but not quite waiting. And... The fact that that experience he gave me that changed my life, the fact it happened on his vacation, lets me know that amazing things can happen when we're supposedly off the clock. There's urgency there. I actually heard a fireside once from the pilot that flew the plane 
that President Hinckley used to go visit the saints all over the, the world. Uh, John Huntsman was kind enough and generous enough to basically say to President Hinckley, use my corporate jet for anything you need. I know you want to be out among the saints. He was the most well-traveled prophet we'd ever had to that point. And this, this way, you don't have to go through airport security every time and sit in the back with the rest of us and, and just go and fly and, and visit the saints. I'll make this as easy as possible. Well, his pilot gave a fireside and he told all kinds of amazing stories of just flying President Hinckley around the world. But the story that, that stands out to me along these lines, they were somewhere in, I think, Southeast Asia, and there was like this monkey temple that was famous for, as a really cool tourist site. If you picture the temple in the Jungle Book that's been kind of overrun by all the monkeys, that's basically what this thing was. And, and people from outside the area were amazed by it. And so in between all kinds of meetings that President Hinckley was holding in the area, they figured, well, let's go see this site. Now, at the time, Sister Hinckley wasn't doing very well physically, so she was at home. But one of President Hinckley's daughters came as his companion. And so they went out. And there was like this trail through the jungle you had to walk through to get to the monkey temple. It was a ways out there. But President Hinckley, full of energy as always, they're bounding their way down the trail. But monkeys are starting to come at them even before they get to the temple. It's still a ways away. And their guides had provided them with bananas to help attract the, the, the native wildlife. Well, that life was pretty wild. And it was President Hinckley's daughter that was holding these bananas and the monkeys started a swarm. And rather than throw the bananas in their direction so she could watch them eat, she kind of freaked out and without thinking, lifted the bananas above her head to try to keep them out of the way. And the, the monkeys just started crawling up her body to get to them. I mean, they were so used to, to humans that they were, they were so... Oh, domesticated almost. There was no fear. So they started swarming all over President Hinckley's daughter. And he died laughing. He just thought, I mean, she was safe. But he thought this was the funniest thing ever. Because she's freaking out like, ah, they're all over me. And finally she kind of came to her senses and threw the bananas and the monkeys went running. And President Hinckley's just doubled over thinking this was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. Now again, they haven't even gotten to what they were, were intended to see. But after kind of catching his breath after this bout of laughter. The pilot said, President Hinckley just kind of shook his head and turned around and said to himself, what are we doing? There's work to be done. And without even getting to the monkey temple, he just about faced, turned back, went back to the car and said, let's go, let's go teach the gospel. That's the way people like Paul, people like President Hinckley were. Stories of President Kimball who would talk to the bus driver when everyone else is crashed after a busy, a busy day of church service. It's amazing to see what's happening here. And Paul, oh, he's like, he's like Jeremiah with that fire in the bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. Paul couldn't stay still. I pray we have that fire in the bones and an urgency to share what we know, to share the gospel and serve the Lord with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. And Paul is doing it in Athens, where, verse 18, certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Now, if you're in Athens, of course you're going to meet some philosophers. And in this case, the Epicureans and the Stoics, notice what they say when they meet him and start hearing his message. Some said, oh, what will this babbler say? 
Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, everybody's got a different approach when they hear Paul talk about Jesus. Remember in that earlier city, they were concerned that this guy's against Caesar because he's preaching a different king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. No, 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 we only got one king and it's Caesar. It's kind of like what the, the Jews were saying against Jesus. And Pilate, if you are a friend of Jesus, then you can't be a friend of, of Caesar. And that, was, that worked. Well, that's among the political class. Here, among the philosophical class, who is Jesus? Wait, some, some strange God and strange doctrine? Resurrection? That's impossible. Uh, especially among the Epicureans and the Stoics, they had a hard time even with the Greek pantheon. As philosophers, that seemed beneath them. That seemed superstitious to, to many of them. And so, yeah, not a real belief in gods, especially some kind of human god, deified Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. And the resurrection, because they had a hard time wrapping their heads around any kind of belief in an afterlife as well. Now, Epicureans are more famous for their focus on pleasure. To them, pleasure was the ultimate goal of life. But this wasn't hedonism. This wasn't kind of a uh, no-holds-barred kind of just do whatever you want and wild, live, you know, riotous living, to borrow the phrase from the prodigal son. No, their, their pleasure was meant to come from modest living, a denial of other kinds of things. So good people in, in general... But thinking that this, is li this life is all there is, and so find pleasure in, in a simple way of living. Now, Stoics were similar in terms of, again, we're not putting our eggs in heaven's basket. This, is, this life is what we've got. And life isn't pleasure, Epicureans. Life is hard. But if we can approach it without allowing emotion to make us feel so bad about it, then we'll find some, some meaning and some purpose in life as well. And that was the hope of the Stoics. If you've heard somebody referred to as stoical, or that person is a Stoic, it's this idea of I'm, not, I'm pretty unemotional. And things come and I just deal with it and let's move on and not allow it to affect us too, too much emotionally. And so picture Paul. Again, we're trying to balance mind and heart here. Uh, pleasure, but what's true joy? Oh, emotion, there's room for it. There's a place for that. These Stoics and Epicureans, however, are really wondering about this strange doctrine, from, about strange gods coming from this strange man. In fact, what do they call them? Did you catch their word? What will this babbler say? The hilarious thing about that is the Greek term that is being translated babbler there means Seed picker, literally. What's this seed picker going to do? Now, maybe they're referring to him as some kind of country bumpkin. Like, we are, this is, we are Athenian philosophers, for crying out loud. And you, well, from, from Tarsus? Where the heck is that? It's almost like people say, well, what, where did you get your PhD? And, and all this pride factors in and pitting people. No, you're just a seed picker. In fact, seed picker can refer to birds as they swoop down and kind of just look for seeds, if they can just pick the earth and find something to put in their bellies, and then apply that to people, 
are these seed pickers that are going around looking for scraps of knowledge. Disconnected from other scraps of knowledge, but if I can just get enough, then maybe I can come across as somewhat intelligent, since that's what matters here in Athens. Oh no, you, Paul, you are just a seed picker. And we don't care about these little scraps of doctrine that you're coming up with. No, strange gods, strange beliefs, and we don't buy it. So in verse 19, what do they do? They took him and brought him unto Areopagus. Now, fun word to say. Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. Ares, Areo, so Areopagus is this hill. And Ares was the god of war and the god of courage in Greek mythology. Now, there's going to be a war, but it's going to be a war of words and a tumult of opinions. It's going to be an ideological battle, a battle over belief between people like Epicureans and Stoics and a disciple of Jesus Christ, an apostle with true doctrine. And so, yes, Paul will, re will need all the courage he can muster to take on an army of the intelligentsia there at the hill of Ares, Areopagus. By the way, Areopagus could also refer to the council that met there or nearby. The people that meet in the marketplace to decide religious matters and cultural matters. That's the Areopagus as well. Well, they take him, they bring him to Areopagus, and they said, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? I mean, these are things we've never heard of before, and we're not sure, we don't know where you come from, you seed picker, and so uh, what, what philosophy are you trying to introduce? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke inserts this fascinating comment in parentheses. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And that is such a perfect description of so much of academia. Oh, we just want to know some new thing. Let's talk about it. Let's tell about it. Let's hear about it. But so often it's more about creating new knowledge rather than implementing old wisdom. Paul will warn Timothy. I remember Timothy's on this mission too. He hasn't yet made it to Athens, but he'll learn about the experiences Paul has there. He warns Timothy about those who are ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And that sounds like these Epicureans and Stoics too. It sounds like these philosophers that are just interested in, oh, you know, can we, let's hear, hear, let's watch another TED Talk. Now, I love TED Talks, but if it's just, do you do anything about it? Do you weigh it against the standard works? Do you check it against the canon? Do you, do you if, and if you believe, if you find it to be true, do you do anything about it? Do you build a house upon those rocks? Or is it just shifting sand? And I wasn't planning on building anything anyway. Just, hey, there's sand, so surf self. Let's go ride a wave of some new piece of information. Oh, there's a lot of irrelevance out there. And there's a lot of disinterest hiding behind intellectual pride. Of, teach me something I don't already know. Sometimes we're guilty of that, even in our own gospel study. That if it's not some new insight, or if it's like we're going to read the same old story in Scripture, I've already been there, done that. And it keeps us from 
continuing our progress. Now, we, we've got to be careful. I've actually met some people who come because they're having a faith crisis and they're wrestling with questions, but they seem to prefer their questions to any possible answers. It really does feel like whack-a-mole because they'll raise something. And I'm like, oh, that's a good question to ask. And here's some context and something like, oh, what about this? I'm like, oh, that's what we're talking about. And we shift over there and I start to answer like, oh, well, what about this? And I was like, whoa, you, it's one thing to have questions in pursuit of answers. That's great. But to prefer questions and use questions almost in avoidance of answers, that's a problem. And it seems to be a problem among these philosophers. I love the life of the mind. I'm more mind than heart in, in many areas. Ask my wife. She, that's a, she's the opposite. She's got an incredible combination, but boy is she heart. I, I love the life of the mind. But if it is merely intellectual pride at work, if it's what's the next thing, and I already know that, so I, I don't have time for you, then I am in need of repentance. And am I in danger of learning, 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 but never really coming to a knowledge of the capital T truth? Or is it mere gossip? And we're just showing off and talking about things and hearing some new thing. And who, Areopagus is the TED Talk platform, the stage, and who's going to be on it this week? So interesting. In fact, if you're a lover of old musicals like I am, do you remember the scene in The Music Man when it's a bunch of women that are coming together to gossip and they're all wearing kind of the time period, these flowery hats that have feathers and all kinds of stuff. And the way the scene is filmed, it's hilarious because kind of this underline, this background chanting almost, they keep saying, Cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. Cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. And speaking of seed pickers, which is what the birds are doing, and the way it's filmed is these women looking back and forth as they gossip to one another and talk and hear about some new thing. And the feathers on their hats are going back and forth, and it turns it into a, a barnyard scene where it's a bunch of seed pickers trying to pick up some scrap of something that they can use against one another or use for themselves to make them look superior. Oh, cheap, cheap, cheap. Talk a lot. Pick a little more. They're accusing Paul of being that kind of person. And yet that, that phrase describes what they're up to. So please beware of questions in avoidance of answers. Be aware of some kind of insatiable thirst for some new thing that never really satisfies the soul. Be, be cautious and careful as you navigate the life of the mind and the realm of academia. Okay, Philosophers, keep an eye open. Well, verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. And Mars is the Roman god, Ares is the Greek god. So we're still here at the hill of Ares. We're still at Areopagus. We're now just using a Roman name. It's Mars Hill. And he said, a famous, famous discourse here. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now that sounds harsh. The Greek word simply means you are very religious. And that could be good or bad. Good? Oh, you're very religious. You are, you are reverencing the gods and want to make sure that all of your spiritual bases are covered. 
That's the positive. The negative might be you're overthinking everything and you're trying to come up with a, a God for every possible scenario so that you can appease them somehow. That seems more superstitious than religious to me. And that might be what he's getting at because his next line. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. I mean, if we're at Mars Hill, we're so close to the Parthenon. And the Parthenon, in some ways, is like a pantheon. It's surrounded by other shrines and other altars. And you name the god or goddess, they have some place to go and worship them. But this one, this altar surprised even Paul. Remember when he first landed in Athens, he said, this whole place is wholly given to idolatry. There are the idols everywhere I look, but this one really caught my eye. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I mean, just in case they missed anyone amid the wide-ranging pantheon, we're trying to cover all our bases, and so... We'll build a temple to Athena, and we'll set up an altar to Zeus, and we'll have a hill that's for Ares. And again, the Greek and Roman pantheons were chock full of gods and goddesses that you didn't want to get on the bad side of. And so just in case there's one up there that we haven't been introduced to yet, since they seem to be consorting with mortals, and there are these demigods coming left and right, and I can't keep them all straight. So let's set up an altar and, and inscribe it to anyone not already covered by our other places of worship. Okay? I, we hope that that's good enough for them. Well, what does Paul say in light of that kind of superstition? I love his testimony here. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. You see, there is only one true and living God. And the means whereby we approach him is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so let me introduce you to a God that needs no pantheon to be a part of. Let me introduce you to a God worth knowing and knowing intimately and infinitely. Remember John 17, 3, the great intercessory prayer? What does Jesus say at the beginning? This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so to a bunch of ignorant worshipers, please give me the chance to introduce you to a God that wants to be known, a God who knows you perfectly. There's something profound here because this mere seed picker, this babbler with strange beliefs and strange gods, no, he's a true messenger of the true and living God and he knows the God of whom he speaks. He met the Lord on the road to Damascus and he's, bearing he's been bearing testimony of him ever since. So listen up. This actually reminds me of a phrase that Elder Brucey Hafen gave in a conference talk years ago that blew me away at its boldness. It was a talk on the atonement. And Elder Hafen is incredibly... Oh, he would have been able to hang out among the Athenian philosophers, no problem at all. Just an incredibly gifted academic himself. 
But in this conference talk, he talked about the atonement and pushed back against people who accuse us of ignorance in that topic. People that think, oh yeah, Latter-day Saints, they don't know Jesus, they don't understand grace, they don't get the atonement. Now they think it's works righteousness and they're earning their way to heaven and it's a different heaven anyway and we, who, who, who cares? But this is what Elder Hafen said. It was crazy bold. Only the restored gospel has the fullness of these truths. The truths about the atonement that he was teaching. Yet, the adversary is engaged in one of history's greatest cover-ups trying to persuade people that this church knows least when in fact it knows most about how our relationship with Christ makes true Christians of us. That was bold. You accuse us of knowing least, of being seed pickers with the doctrines of Christ. No, with all humility, we know most because the Lord has revealed it unto us. So again, with all humility, him whom ye ignorantly worship, declare I unto you. Can you picture every eye on Areopagus riveted on Paul? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Friends, Athenians, philosophers, lend me your mind, but open your heart and come to know a God worth knowing. Paul introduces him in this way, verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. Paul will do this repeatedly in his epistles, by the way. He will draw upon creation as evidence for the, the God of creation. He'll invoke that as one of his witnesses. But he says of this God who created heaven and earth, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And it's first of all surprising a Jew would say that since the temple was such a focal point of Jewish religion. It's also shocking he would say that in the shadow of the Parthenon that had presided over Athens for the last 500 years already by the time Paul showed up in town. But no, God is above these altars. He's above these idols, to, make it, to put it a little more bluntly. He doesn't need them. You built this, but he built the, the land that it's standing on. So he says, neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God made us. We don't make God. We need God. God doesn't need us. Remember last year, Isaiah had a field day with this, along with some of the other prophets that had senses of humor. Did you say well, the irony of a graven image to some other God? That you have to like carve the image out of wood and then the leftover scraps you use to like cook your food on? I mean, this is weird. And you have to carry God? No, I'd rather have a God that carries me. And that's the God that Paul knows about. So God is not dependent upon us or upon our worship. In fact, he asks us to worship him for our sake, not for his. We're not trying to appease the divine wrath and hope that more rain happens to fall. No, he sends living water down upon all of us. In fact, verse 26, he hath made of one blood, and that blood belonged to Adam and Eve. So from one set of original parents, he has made 
all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. He hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So God had this all planned out from the very beginning. And how far we'd go and what we'd need and when we'd live and, and the whole process and purpose and plan of it all. And what was his plan for us? That they should seek the Lord. It's the whole purpose of our time on earth to find this God that you're ignorant of. It's why we're here. That's why you keep wrestling with questions. I hope you're finding answers. I'm here to provide you some. So seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Now, haply is not happily. He's not saying that. Happily means perhaps. So if the purpose of our life is to seek the Lord, then maybe, just maybe, we might feel after him. Not just think after him, you philosophers, but feel. Yes, you need your brain, but you need your heart. And balance those so that revelation can come. But feel after him. If you'll do that, it's not just perhaps. It's a promise. You will find him. Why? Because he's not far from every one of us. He's closer than you think. And I don't mean closer because the Parthenon is just up the hill. Not closer because we have so many altars close at hand. No, the God of creation itself. His Spirit fills His creation. And if we'll just feel for that, then we will find Him because He's looking for us in return. That's part of what Joseph Smith called his paternal regard. And that's what Paul gets at next. Verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. And have our being is just a long way of saying be. We live in God. We move in God. We be. We are in God. The great I am himself. And you don't have to take my word for it. As certain also of your own poets have said. And then he quotes, not Hebrew scripture here, but Greek and Roman poetry and philosophy. There are scholars out there that have searched through the corpus of texts and realized that, yes, Paul was actually quoting writers that the intelligent, the educated would have been familiar with. And what was their message? This is powerful. For we are also his offspring. Oh, that's something worth writing poetry about. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He's going right back to what he'd said earlier. We didn't create God. God created us. He doesn't need altars with inscriptions. He wants to inscribe something within us. And it's family resemblance that he's trying to write within our hearts. He's trying to get us to offer upon an altar. No mere inscription, but rather a broken heart and a contrite spirit. A heart that will be remade after the image of his. Because we're his children yeah, that makes for good poetry. That's the foundation of some powerful philosophy. And, you don't have, and it goes far beyond Epicureanism and Stoicism. And yeah, you don't have to be a philosopher to figure it out. I mean, we sang it about it in primary, right? I am a child of God. That's what he's getting at. But I do love that it's found not only in primary songs, 
but in Hebrew scripture and in Hellenized poetry. You think about missionaries who go and try to embrace the language and literature and culture of the people among whom they serve so that they have other things to draw upon, common beliefs to build upon. And this same Paul, who is ready to quote Scripture left and right among Jews and prove through the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, well, here he's turning to things that they believe in and helping them understand his strange doctrine is actually not so strange at all. It is a reminder of something we all feel down deep, that we are children of God, a God who loves us. So what does Paul say with this as background? Because he wants to call repentance. He wants to call them out of this city wholly given to idolatry and make them not overly superstitious, but truly religious with a true religion to hold to. So notice what he says about this. You really thought you could make a god out of gold or silver or the, the craft of your own hands? No. Now verse 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now this is one of my favorite verses to unpack because it suggests a winking God. Now, with the help of Enoch's visions in Moses chapter 7, we know about a weeping God. And it's one of my favorite images of our, our heavenly parents. The fact that we have a God who weeps lets us know that he loves us, that he is worried about us, that he is pained by our pains and suffers with our sufferings. But what's the difference between a God who weeps and a God who winks? This is not just kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink here in the Greek means to overlook something, to disregard something, to take no notice of something. Can you get a, the sense of a wink? To turn a blind, we talk about turning a blind eye. Well, if it's a blind eye, well, just, I don't want to blind it. Just close it. I'll keep the other one open to see what you're up to, but I'll close that one so I don't take it as seriously as I probably should. Now, there's dangers at winking at things that are just flat out wrong and should not be allowed. Parents need to have both eyes wide open most of the time. But if they're trying to help their children learn and grow and not do everything for them, if they're trying to help them develop a certain degree of independence and a righteous exercise of agency, then sometimes parents do turn a blind eye. Sometimes they wink and disregard even some things that children are doing wrong. You parents out there, have you ever overheard your children fighting? And instead of rushing in to pull them apart and, and send them to their rooms separately, it's like one spouse will hold back the other spouse and go, wait, 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 let's just let them try to work this out. Maybe they're old enough to figure it out. And if so, all the better, because how many fights happen when we aren't around, right? Maybe it's something you see a child struggling with something and they can't tie their shoes or they can't fix their whatever it is. And we wink and we just, you got this. You can do this. I'm not, I'll help if you absolutely need me, but I don't think you do. 
And when that child successfully accomplishes it on their own, it's such a better feeling of success than if mom and dad had done it for them. In some ways, God winks at us for the first eight years of our lives. And during those years of unaccountability, it's not that we're not sinning. It's that God isn't counting it as sin. God is winking, sometimes probably painfully so, but disregarding and not holding us accountable for that because during those years, he's trying to help us grow up in God. He's trying to help us learn to live like him. Now, if that's true on the individual level, here he's talking about it on the the community, the level of culture itself, civilization itself. That among these Athenians, these times of ignorance, him whom you ignorantly worship, same term, right? So it's all these years of idolatry, a city wholly given to it. God is not holding you completely responsible. Let's not worry about your past. Let's talk about your, your future and what you need to do in the present to move into a more glorious one. Because up to this point, God has been winking at such idolatry. I mean, it's natural for people to feel that there's something above them that controls things in ways that they cannot. And so to appease those kinds of deities, no wonder basically every primitive culture can't help but be religious, but it tends towards some kind of polytheism or idolatry, nature worship or appeasing the gods, whatever it might be. God's okay with that because at least you're feeling something lift you up beyond yourself, but beyond mere mortality. That's a good thing. But it's got some problems and it definitely falls short of where he wants you to be. So to this point, he's been winking. But now, Paul says, he's commanding you to repent. You're accountable now. And I'm making sure of that. So God will no longer turn a blind eye to these idolatries. He's hoped that by now you've outgrown them and are ready to step into his marvelous light. As we see this ongoing restoration that President Nelson so beautifully talks about, have there been things that we haven't fully understood in our past? Have there been some institutional growing up, has there been some institutional growing up to do as well as individual? And to me, it's powerful to, to know that God honors the process, recognizes our ignorance and our humanity, honors the fact that we're doing the best that we can, and will help soften the blow of our own weaknesses will provide revelation, line upon line, precept upon precept, in order for us to grow and understand. And thankfully, for me as a person and for us as a people, there are times where God winks in a way that allows us to learn from our mistakes rather than being condemned by them. In hopes that when the time comes for the Lord to say, okay, winking's over, and you are fully accountable, responsible to live according to the truth that I am giving you, it's time to repent. And I hope that we are. Paul had actually hinted about this earlier last week when we were studying Acts chapter 14. Do you remember this verse, verse 16? 
Speaking of God, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. That's during his period of winking. Okay, Let them do their thing. Try to figure it out. Grow up and develop some kind of independence. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. That's the, now he's asking you to repent. And the witness he was giving them, as well as these people in Athens, was his own creation that God provides for his children. I pray we can take advantage of our opportunities to learn. And when God is winking, he's not saying, ha that's funny what you're doing. It's like, no, it's like, mm, you, you can do better, but I'm giving you the chance to do so. Then we see in verse 31, a bit of a deadline to this learning process. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how's he going to judge it? By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. What he means by that is Christ is going to be this judge. He's the man whom God hath ordained to judge the world in righteousness. And no one better to do it, since Christ is not just judge, he's also advocate. He's our defense attorney because he came down, condescended, word made flesh, so he'd understand the weakness of the flesh. Therefore, he, can, he knows when to wink and when to call us to repentance. He knows how to balance agency and inspiration and accountability versus unaccountability and learning experiences that he's going to, that he's going to pay the bail money for, just like Jason had. You understand what I'm getting at here? What, that's what Jesus came to do. It's what a loving father sent him to do, knowing that we are his offspring and we'll need all the help we can get to grow up to be like him. I love that he's testifying of Jesus here in a way that's different than how he testified among Jews. But to see the resurrection, because again, that was the concern they had. Two issues, like this Jesus guy, some strange new God. I never heard of him. And we've got a pretty big pantheon. Should we include him on the altar to the unknown? And the other thing was this resurrection thing you talk about. Because that's non-rational. That's non-empirical. Uh, for an Epicurean or a Stoic or any other philosopher under the sun, live again after you die? I don't know. That seems, death seems pretty complete. End of story. But here... Paul, genius as always, is weaving these two strands together to say, no, no, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the, the Messiah that we must worship. Oh, never mind. That's the Jewish thing. He is the, the way, the truth, the life. He is the greatest philosopher to ever live. And he's calling us to repent. And you know what the proof of his credentials are? His credentials come from his resurrection. The fact that God raised him from the dead, of whom I am a witness. This is a defense attorney that has conquered sin and death for us all. So come unto him. Verse 32 then, Luke describes their reaction. Mixed as always. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And if you're living in a purely intellectual world, then yeah, it sounds kind of crazy. Someone rising from the dead, how's that scientifically possible? Yes, they mocked, 
But others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Hmm, sounds like they're more noble than the first group, more open-minded, willing to weigh the options here. At least come back and let's talk about this some more. I've got some questions. And so Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, third group, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you see the three groups in those last couple of verses? Some straight up just mocked from the start. Like, are you kidding me? Close-minded. It's strange and impossible. Others, well, at the opposite extreme, those who cleave and believe, who just want to hold to Paul and stay with him, including an Areopagite himself, Dionysius. There's a Greek name for you. And someone there that recognizes Paul's superior wisdom and believes in it with all his heart. And then in the middle, people that just need more time. And that's fine. Take the t whatever time you need. Ask whatever questions you want, as long as they're questions in search of answers rather than in avoidance of them. Paul's experience in Athens is a fascinating one, especially since we still live in a world influenced by Athenian ideology, a world where the philosophies of men sometimes mingle with Scripture and sometimes don't want to touch Scripture with a 10-foot pole. But it's the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the Kool-Aid that's out there. And are we aware of what we're imbibing that sometimes makes it more likely that we'll mock at truth instead of attending to it and coming to know of its truthfulness? With that, we turn to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, Paul's mission will continue. In a way, he's done with Athens, but uh, Athenian influence will follow. What will Paul do in its wake? Verse 1, 2, 3. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. And yes, that's where the epistles to the Corinthians will come. It's Athenia, Athens' little brother or sister. Okay, And there he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. Sounds like anti-Semitism is a very old problem, and it is. And so the Roman leaders there in the capital, I don't want any Jews around town, so get out. And Aquila and his wife Priscilla were among those that, that were forced out. So they now find themselves living in Corinth, and Paul finds them there. And it's a match made in heaven. Listen to this. He came unto them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought. In other words, he worked, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And that's a detail we didn't know about Paul until this point. I just thought he was a, a Jewish oh, coat holder and a Jewish persecutor of Christians. Well, that was, that was more of his ministry, if you want to call it that. His day job was making tents. You've got to be able to put food on the table somehow. And that's how Paul did it. And that's how Aquila and Priscilla did too. You're going to see later in the epistles how close he is to these two. Here they're called Aquila and Priscilla. Often when Paul is writing letters, and he knows that those two are still around town where he's writing, he'll mention them by name. And he usually reverses it and, and calls out Priscilla before Aquila. 
putting woman before man, which is really cool of Paul. Sometimes he even calls her Prisca instead of Priscilla, because it's Prisca for short. And again, I love that relationship that you can call somebody by a, a, a nickname, that you can shorten their name, and it's, it's Johnny instead of John, okay? It's, it, to, to me, it's, it's Matt instead of Matthew. It's Prisca instead of Priscilla. And how do they develop this relationship? Well, they had the same job. And when Paul comes into Corinth, you got to understand something about missions back then. They're not getting paid for this. This is no professional clergy. Remember Peter and John at the steps of the temple? To the layman, sorry that silver and gold have I none. I've given it all to everybody else. That's how consecration works. And I just go, like Jesus had told us from the start, without purse or script and just trusting that people will provide. Or trusting we'll be able to provide for ourselves. As a missionary, when people would sometimes ask in disbelief at how hard we worked, they're like, whoa, how much is your church paying you? And we'd always laugh and go, you, you heard of minimum wage? Well, how about negative wage? <laughs> we don't get paid to do this. We pay our own way. We're the ones putting food on our table. And that's what Paul is doing. And how's he doing it? By tent making. Now, what I love about that, just like Lydia's profession was so perfect to recognize who really ought to wear the purple, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla's profession as tent makers. <laughs> Can you think of a better description of what a missionary is doing as they build the kingdom? They're making tents. Isaiah described Zion as a tent that keeps people out from the beating sun or from the covert from storm and from rain. Come in under the tent flaps. In fact, let us lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes so that the, temp, that, so that the, te the tent can cover everything. The tabernacle of Moses was the tent of testimony, the tent of witness. The temple was just the tabernacle made permanent. It was a tent of stone, but a tent nonetheless. And so Paul, oh yes, tent maker extraordinaire. And he's trying to extend its borders so that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, can come in. This is so, so fitting. In verse 4, what's he do when he gets to Corinth? And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So he's following his usual approach, focusing first on Jews, but then spreading to Greeks, but reasoning, persuading, doing all that he can to help them understand. Now, when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, so I guess they were too late to catch up to him in Athens, but they found him finally in Corinth, Paul is pressed in the spirit. And pressed in the spirit, I'm not sure if that's the right translation. The Greek word there for spirit is logos. And logos is that word we learned in John 1.1 about the word. So is he pressed in the spirit? Other translations say he was occupied with the word. Either way, he's doing, it, it's weighing on him. I've got to teach. I've got to spread the word. And so he does. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Fine, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Now, did you see that hinge point, that pivot 
I, I come to you Jews first every time. This seems to happen over and over and over again with Paul, where he'll try among the Jews, maybe gain a measure of success, but then really the Gentiles are the ones with open ears and open minds. There's a, a common foundation among the Jews, so he can prove out of the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. But sometimes that common belief can be such a strong belief in the old that it never transitions into the new. And I'm sure any return missionary has had that kind of experience too. But for Paul to be able to shake his garments the way Jacob did in the Book of Mormon, to say, my blood, or excuse me, your blood is on your own head, it's not on my garments. The ball's in your court. I've done my job. I've given you the opportunity to reflect upon these truths and respond to them. But you're responding poorly. You're rejecting instead of receiving. So what do I do? I turn to the Gentiles. Remember in Alma 32 when Alma is trying to teach these apostate Zoramites and they just won't listen? They're too prideful. And he feels like kind of a tug from behind on his coat, coat tails and turns around and there are Zoramite poor that are in a preparation for the word. And so he turns, literally and symbolically, from the audience he thought he was supposed to be addressing to the audience that was actually prepared for his address. And that's what Paul is doing here. But hold on, before we turn entirely, verse 7, he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So he's the next door neighbor of the Jewish house of worship. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So I understand, Paul, why you are turning to the Gentiles, but don't leave the Jews completely behind. Don't give up on anyone. Yes, keep your options open, but keep the old options open as well. And this next-door neighbor to the synagogue, this chief ruler of the synagogue, the fact that you're finding success among them means there are still people that you need to remain open to because they're open to you. In verse 9, the Lord actually confirms that with, to me, one of the most beautiful things you could ever say, that God could ever say to a missionary. Verse 9, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. So visionary man as always. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And with that in mind, Paul took that seriously, continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Incredibly successful mission among the Corinthians. And Paul spent a year and a half there, because the Lord said, I have much people. And that proved to be true. Now, I'll admit, most of what the Lord said to Paul, Paul probably didn't need to be told. Fear not? Did it look like I was afraid? The only reason I ever leave town is because the disciples are afraid for me, and they whisk me away. No, I, I'm not afraid of anything. Speak and hold not thy peace? Uh, you don't have to tell me that. In fact, you have to tell me the opposite whenever that's necessary. You've got to rein me in, because otherwise I'm not waiting for companions. I'm climbing Areopagus and preaching every chance that I get. Paul is as one of the greatest missionaries in history. 
And yet this wonderful reminder, yeah, keep it up, Paul. You're doing great. Don't be afraid. Keep preaching. And then the beautiful reassurance, for I am with thee. No wonder you didn't wait for companions in Athens. You already had one. And while Silas and Timothy were a little too slow, the Lord was quick to join you in preaching. The Lord is with his servants. Also that phrase, that promise in the middle, no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Hold on to that one because there's, we're going to see Paul experience a lot of pain, but hurt in the permanent way. Hurt in a way that would hurt him spiritually. Nope, not, none of that will occur. And then again, this last promise, I have much people. These are the assurances we all need when we go forth to serve the Lord. I actually remember my last area in the mission field. I was only there for one month. It's all I had, and I knew it going in because I had my release date. I had travel plans, and I, I've got four weeks to make a difference. Now, for the previous seven months, I had been serving in the office with the mission president, and he told me, Elder Halverson, you got one month left. What do you want to do with it? And I said, well, I can I have an extra month? I'd love to extend. And he said, well, yeah, you can extend six months. And I'm like, really? He said, no. I'm like, jerk. Uh, he, was a, he was an old runner. And I told him, I feel like I'm on a relay race and I'm running out of track. And I do not want to pass the baton on. I want to keep going. And he laughed and he said, well, you're running out of, you're running out of room. You've run well. There's another race, another track back home. You can keep running there, but it's time to pass it on. I'm like, can I just hit the head of the greenie? He doesn't know what he's doing. And then I'll just take his lap too. And he'd laugh, no, you, you can't. You got to go. But you still have to, do have one more month. So Elder Halverson, where would you like it to be spent? And I'm like, this is a test and I will pass it. I will go where you want me to go, dear Presidente. Uh, I don't go, I don't choose wh where I serve. You do. And I'm happy to serve wherever you send me because that's how it works. And he smiled and he said, this isn't a test, Elder Halverson. I want you to choose your last area. What do you want to do? You want to stay here last month with me? It's great. Fine. Love to have you. If you'd prefer to go back to one of your old areas and see how they do, great. That's fine, too. Do you want to be a district leader? Do you want to be a zone leader? Do you want to train another missionary? I mean, you don't have a month, but you can hopefully they're a quick learner. Any place on the island you haven't been to that you've always wanted? I mean, we, there's, we also have two of the Virgin Islands in the mission, St. Thomas and St. Croix. My ears really perked up with that one, because we all dreamed of going to those islands, and hardly, hardly anyone got to. Well, with all the options in the world, I made the horrible mistake of praying about it. <laughs> because for the last 23 months, I hadn't done my own will, and I certainly wasn't going to start then. So I asked Heavenly Father, where do you need me? To borrow the language here, where do you have much people? Or with only a month, even just the worth of a single soul is great in thy sight. And the answer clearly came, go to Ponce. And I was like, are you sure there's no one on St. Thomas that you need me to teach? Because I really wanted to go there. Ponce, I knew the missionary that was serving there, my companion, would, he was a great guy. I didn't know him personally, but I knew enough of him. I'm like, oh, he'll be a great companion. But I also knew not much was happening there as far as church growth and missionary work in that, at that time. And I also knew it was the hottest part of the island. It was the hottest month of the year. And I'm like, I'm going to boil down there. I'm going to fry. 
But I knew that's where the Lord wanted me to be. And I knew that there was at least someone there I was supposed to teach. And with only four weeks, I knew I needed to meet him early. And I think I met him my second day there. His name was Arturo. His wife was a member of about a year. Loved the gospel. On fire. But so on fire, it kind of singed her husband. Who was more of a thinker. Needed more reasoning. Needed to prove out of the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. All those phrases. And his wife was like, oh, it's just true. Come on, just believe and get baptized. And it frustrated him and he'd get impatient. But when I met him, we just clicked immediately. Had a great sense of humor, really knew the Bible, and we would just dig in. And because he'd already had all the discussions, I'm like, well, check those boxes. Somebody else already did. What do you need to know, Arturo? What are your questions? What are your concerns? What's, what's holding you back? Because I said to him, I, like, seriously, like the second time I saw him, I, I just knew, you're the reason I'm here. It's your fault I'm not in the, 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 the Virgin Islands. Hmm. And so I said to him, uh, Arturo, I'm here to baptize you. And he's like, whatever. Uh, I love, your church is great for my wife. I'm glad she has it, but I don't believe in it. And I just laughed and I said, that's okay. You got a month to change your mind. I just figured since it's your baptism, you might want to know about it. And it's going to happen before I leave. And he'd laugh and I'd laugh. And I'd never been that bold with anybody before because I'd never felt so strongly about that phrase. There's this person that God has for you there. But based on the conversations we had, which were unlike any missionary discussion I'd had with anyone else, my last Sunday on my mission, I was in the baptismal font with Arturo. And he was rejoicing, as was his wife and the rest of the branch. It was a powerful experience. Here, Paul, though, ready to go and find these people that God has prepared for him, it doesn't start very well. That should <laughs> warn us. Obstacles to overcome. Verse 12, when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul. There's unity, the right means, in pursuit of conflict, the wrong ends. But they're all together on this. They all united to persecute him, just like they would against Joseph Smith. He'd use the same phrase. But here they are, insurrection, and they brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And no, it's not contrary to the law. It's only contrary to your traditions or your interpretations of the law. Now, when Paul was now about to open his mouth, so he's going to defend himself, and he can, he's ready for it, but he doesn't get the chance. Gallio said unto the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. In other words, if this was a criminal case instead of some religious one, then yes, I'd hear you out. I would weigh the pros and cons. I would pass judgment. I would determine the issues here. But it's not. This isn't a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness. He says, if it be a question of words and names and of your law, then look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Now, in some ways, Gallio is doing what Pilate attempted to do. Remember, Pilate was like, well, I, I've, I've examined this man and found no guilt in him. This seems to, yes, he said he's king of the Jews, but not in a political sense. This is not treason. This is, you, go back to your original charges, the ones that you were gun-shy about bringing up to me. 
This is a matter of blasphemy in your mind, not a matter of treason in mine. So I'm washing my hands and see you to that. That's what he wanted. But he succumbed to that pressure and ended up crucifying the Christ. Now, Gallio's not going to do any of that. I'm not going to punish Paul. I'm not going to do any of that. I don't care. I did. This, in fact, the way he says it is so powerful. This is a question of words and names. And your law, or however you choose to interpret it. And so often, the interreligious conflicts we find ourselves in, the confusion we sometimes face, is either an interpretation of law, which again seems to be more tradition and custom and culture. That's just how you're perceiving things, or that's how you've always done it, or those... That's the result of the historical Christian creeds. That's not exactly what the Bible lays out. So we're, we seem to argue over those things. And the other things we argue over are words and names, which is really interesting. It's semantics. And so often our struggles come down to semantic issues where we're using the same word but meaning two different things. And if we just slow down and clarify definitions and what do you mean by those words or those names? And is this law or is it tradition? And help me understand where you're coming from. It takes a lot longer. But we, it turns out a lot better. Because we're paying the price to come to an understanding of one another. The other issue here worth keeping in mind is Gallio's refusal to, turn a political, to take a religious issue and turn it into a political one. And I would recommend to many of us, beware of doing the same thing in reverse and taking a political issue and turning it into a religious one. During COVID, I got a lot more questions about this, but for some reason I've been getting a lot more lately. When people have decided to leave the church or are struggling in the faith because of mask mandates and vaccine recommendations and I don't believe in President Nelson because he said this and the, the vaccine ended up hurting that person or whatever it might be. And again, as I said back then during COVID, I'll say it again now in its aftermath. It's not on the one hand, it's not coincidence, a coincidence that the prophet during a pandemic is a doctor. To which people would always say, oh, so you're just going to get the, the, the vaccine or we all have to just do the, do the thing, the mandate. And I said, on the other hand, number two. I'm proving contraries here, as usual. This is also the prophet that repeatedly has told us to learn to hear him, as in the Lord, to receive revelation of your own. This is a prophet with rules who also understands exceptions to the rules, who understands general medicine and what is better for the majority, but also individual diagnosis that's going to require some different kind of prescription. You understand what I'm trying to say here? Please do not leave the church over mask mandates and vaccines. When a prophet has been speaking prophetically to the majority, but also allowing for those exceptions that need to know themselves and study things out on their own. Most importantly, and I've said this to many people, this seems to be a political issue at its core, not a religious one. And it seems to be those on the far right. And there's problems on the far left, too. 
where you bring your political underpinnings to home to church with you. And you bring it into church and all of a sudden your politics are informing your religion instead of vice versa. And because I don't, because I wouldn't vote for him as president, then I can't sustain him as prophet. You understand the difference and the danger there? Gallio was wise. I'm not going there. And we would be wise to, to be careful along those lines too. If we're more discerning and self-aware, is this a political problem that I, that I christened and brought to church? Please be careful there. Then verse 17, all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. Again, I'm not concerned about your religious matters, even if it turns into interreligious violence. It's these Jews that are up in arms against the Christians, and now it's these Greeks that are up in arms against the Jews, and so they take this Jewish leader, the synagogue ruler, and beat him. We got problems here. But Gallio, that's a religious problem. Leave it there. Meanwhile, Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, good companions, we can keep building, uh, making tents together, and keep extending the tent of Zion together as well. But he goes with them, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. And that's an interesting detail too. He shaved his head for some kind of vow's sake. Now we didn't, we're not specifically told what the vow is, but it sounds a lot like a Nazarite vow, where you set yourself apart to live a higher standard and more fully immerse yourself in the work of God. I mean, I don't know how much more immersed Paul can get, but to shave his head and say, I'm all in. Wow. The shaving of the head, by the way, is a great symbol because it suggests a new birth. Lots of babies come out bald, right? <laughs> a new beginning, but it also marks the time of that new beginning. And as your hair grows, it's a visible reminder of how long you've been living this vow. It's kind of a, a cool way to measure time. By the time Paul finishes his mission, so he's going to look like Samson. <laughs> he does have spiritual strength. But to see him just want to renew in the face of opposition and people getting beaten it doesn't matter. I know the Lord said he'd be with me and he has much people and I've got work to do. And so I vow, I covenant, I re-immerse myself. I re-enlist. And he's going to go forth boldly with Aquila and Priscilla as his companions. They go to Ephesus in verse 19. And this is going to be a key place. Again, the letter to the Ephesians. Timothy is going to stay and serve there long term. But he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So still holding out hope for his own people, still doing what he always did in a new place. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind to help strengthen the church there in Ephesus. Now when they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not. As much as I love you, as much as I'd love to stay, I got work to do. So he bade them farewell, saying... I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. Now we don't know what feast he's referring to. Some scholars believe it was Passover. More believe that it was Pentecost. Either way, I gotta go. But I will return again unto you if God will. 
So, si Dios quiere, inshallah. God willing, I'll be back because I miss you. I love you. I'd love to come back and keep serving among you. But I've got to go back to Jerusalem for this feast. And so he leaves. He sailed from Ephesus. Interesting that a man who just said, I now turn to the Gentiles, is still living a lot of Jewishness. <laughs> a lot of Jewishness remains. And so he's still preaching in the synagogue. I mean, good thing. He found success among Crispus, the leader of the synagogue in an an earlier city. And there's still Jews that will recognize the fulfillment of their Judaism and Christianity. So yes, I'm turning. But I'm still holding, still giving everyone options. And then this other part, I'm living a Jewish vow, Nazarite, shaving my head along Jewish lines. I want to go back for a Jewish festival at the Jewish capital in Jerusalem. It's kind of like Timothy's willingness to circumcise, be circumcised. Paul, to the Jews I'll be Jewish, to the Greeks I'll be Greek, to the Romans I'll be Roman. I'm all of the above. I'm not trying to flip-flop and shape-shift. I'm trying to relate to people. And I want the world to know that no matter where they start, they can end up within the kingdom of God. So I'll build bridges and try to cross them in their direction so they can cross it back in the direction of God. With that in mind, verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, so port city in Israel, and gone up and saluted the church there in Jerusalem. So you get a sense that Jerusalem is still a headquarters of sorts. He's going to go and talk with James, see how things are going, meet with other apostles. He salutes the church, but then he went down to Antioch, which is more Paul's home base. Okay, some important things happened there for him before. That's the place where he usually leaves from new missions. What he's doing here is he's ending mission number two, and now he's home. But then keep reading. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples, which means the third mission has already begun. That was two verses. And in two verses, he comes home from one mission and then starts another. Two to three. Reminds me of some senior missionaries that I've met that come home just long enough to check in on the kids and go spoil the grandkids and then, let me go spoil God's kids somewhere else. (laughs) And they're off to start another mission somewhere. It's amazing to me. And that's Paul as well. The same one who couldn't stand still in Athens. He couldn't wait at home long in Antioch either. And on this Third mission, and now that it's begun, the first convert we'll meet is verse 24 and 25, a man named Apollos. I love this guy. And it's not Paul that converts him, but Paul will meet him later on. Here's his story. Verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, so Greek name, but Jewish religion. Uh, Timothy would love him, okay? Uh, In one world, in part of another, which side will he go? Christianity, is it somehow split the middle and come out better than both? Well, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, where the greatest library in the ancient world was, so this would have been most likely a very well-educated man. Sure enough, next phrase, he's an eloquent man. So not only does he know his stuff, but he knows how to convey it. Oh, words of wisdom flow every time he opens his mouth. And he's mighty in the scriptures. Perhaps the eloquence comes from the Greek side of things, but the knowledge of scripture comes from the Jewish side of things. He, he's, in some ways, just like Paul. 
And he came to Ephesus. Now, Paul's not there anymore, but good thing he left Priscilla and Aquila behind to build the church because they're going to meet Apollos there and, and fill in the rest of his blanks. Notice what, how it's described. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. So he knew to a certain point the will of God. And being fervent in the spirit, so it's not just the head, it's also the heart. He's firing on both cylinders. But being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Like I said, he knows in part, but man, he lives that part in full. What had John taught? And what had John done? He knew the baptism of John, but that was a baptism of repentance. And this devout man wants to be clean. John spoke of things yet to come, and will Apollos be ready for it? He's a man of great talent, of deep spirituality, but he, he's still missing the rest of the story. And we'll need, need someone to come and fill in the rest of those blanks. I actually met Apollos once in Tennessee, of all places. He wasn't this Apollos, born in Alexandria, but it was this wonderful Southern Baptist man, part of, he was African-American, and black Protestantism is, I mean, preaching. You want to talk about eloquence. I had friends at Divinity School that were ready to step into the, the, the black church and were getting PhDs in homiletics, which is the study of the art of preaching. Yeah, you can get a PhD in it. They didn't need one, but they were getting one anyway. It was like sitting down, we'd have... Oh, interdenominational services at school, and they would get to practice and preach. And it was like listening to Martin Luther King Jr. every week. It was amazing. And I met this one man that was cut from similar cloth. The missionaries had found him, and I went on splits with the missionaries and met him. And he was eloquent. He was mighty in the scriptures. Every time the missionaries bring something up, he said, well, but what about this? And what about this? And it wasn't Bible bashing. It was more, but help me understand this. Or sometimes he would provide a scripture to back up something the missionaries were saying. But this thought of, there's more? I don't know. I was born and raised with this. And I've been studying this and preaching it every chance I get. And the more I listened to his story and got to know him during this missionary visit, I finally said to him, do you know who you are? And he's like, uh, what? I said, you're Apollos. Thankfully, Acts chapter 18, well, I guess, was fresh in my mind at the time. And I said, you are, you're the spitting image of Apollos. And you're amazing, and your eloquence, and your knowledge of Scripture, and your need for the rest of the story. What these missionaries are describing is the, the, the restitution of all things that was spoken of by all, the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. I said, my friend, it's time for the gathering of Israel. It's time for additional light and truth to come flooding into a, a darkening world. It's go time. And man, you are well prepared to see the rest of the story. I just hope you'll have open eyes to see. Apollos, do you have any idea how much good you can do by seeing all that God is doing all around you right now? And he's presenting you with the rest of the story. Remember the analogy I brought up before that 
Judaism is to Christianity as traditional Christianity is to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's this devout Jew holding to what he has. Are you open to, for the rest? And here was this devout Christian holding to what he had. Are you open to the rest? Oh, listen to these missionaries. And in this case, Apollos, listen to Aquila and Priscilla. In verse 26, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, which is what he did. And he had the eloquence to do it. All ears on him, right? He taught diligently the things of the Lord. But it was everything he knew. I mean, how can you teach more than that? But as he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they were as amazed, as impressed with him as I would have been. They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And that's what these missionaries were trying to do with this wonderful man. That, in fact, is the best form of missionary work. Take them in. Find out where they are and what they know and start there. This is like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What page are you on? And from there, help them take the next steps. Help them fill in the, the remaining blanks. Tell them the rest of the story. If we want to alliterate here, confirm and clarify and continue. Confirm what they already know to be true. Clarify the things that have been perhaps misinterpreted or misunderstood. Clarify what remains to be, to be revealed. And then continue and help them continue moving forward. That's what this wonderful mission companionship, husband and wife, tent makers, are doing as they try to extend the tent over Brother Apollos. Now the story ends, when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. Like, this is a good man. Apollos, here's his letter of recommendation. Bring him in, throw your arms around him. Who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. What I love about this relationship, you have disciples vouching for Apollos. And then you have Apollos vouching for the disciples. Talk about symbiosis. Talk about match made in heaven. And them seeing what a blessing Apollos has already been and realizing what a blessing he'll continue to be, that's what I felt about this wonderful man. When you know the rest of the story, oh, you're already running. You've got so much momentum. Let's add to that with direction. You'll know exactly where to go. One of the things I love, by the way, as we talked earlier about Scarecrow and Tin Man and head and heart and how do you balance those and how do Athenians approach things and, and so on. Here, I, I get a sense that the two are becoming one because it refers to people who believed through grace. That seems to be more of the heart approach. I don't know all the gospel. I don't know why it's all true, but I just know that it is. Grace, an unmerited gift of God has come. And I just know, I feel so deeply. It's changed my life. And I can't prove it. I can't point to chapter and verse. I know so many people like that, and they're beautiful saints. Their hearts are so pure. And sometimes when people leave, leave, are threatening to leave the church or have questions and struggle, I don't, even, I don't understand their question. Do I have to? Am I supposed to go down the rabbit hole with them? I don't know. It's just I have the gift of faith, and I just know it. 
They believe through grace. But I love that Apollos is able and willing, but able to come and show by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. That he can mightily convince, not just spiritually convert, both are important, but mightily convince, especially Jews, that would have those questions and might raise those concerns and more intellectual approach to scripture. And what you show me chapter and verse in the Hebrew Bible where that's proven. And Apollos is like, great, I can. Just like Paul could, right? He's able as well. But I love that here comes a head disciple to go help the heart disciples. Just like there have been heart disciples to help him. You see why we need each other? And one is not better than the other, but hopefully the two can become equally yoked and catch up to one another. So we have both an intellectual and a spiritual leg to stand on. So that we can give a reason, that's head, for the hope, that's heart, that is in us. So that we can study by, so that we can gain knowledge by study, that's the head, and by faith, that's the heart. Apollos, his gifts lay in the intellectual realm. But he offered those gifts for, to people whose gifts lay elsewhere. And I pray that we can do the same. No matter who you are and what side of that spectrum you're on, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It's remarkable. And in my own case, it, ha it is as intellectually satisfying as it is spiritually enlightening. And I am as convinced in my head as I am converted in my heart that Jesus is the Christ and that his gospel and church have been restored for such a time as this. Apollos, please come running. Priscilla and Aquila, we need your help. My friends, it's all hands on deck because the kingdom of God is rolling forth. In chapter 19, the kingdom picks up speed and continues to roll. The stone has already been cut out of the mountain without hands, and now a bunch of hands are trying to move it forward even faster. We've seen the hands of Paul and of Silas and of Timothy and the hands of Crispus and Justice and, and Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla. We're now seeing the hands of Apollos. That's where we ended chapter 18. Now as we shift to the second half of this week's lesson and shift more deeply into the third missionary journey of Paul, Apollos is going to come onto the scene yet again. Chapter 19, verse 1, 2, 3. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, so he's going back there now, and for a head disciple, that's a great place to go, since Corinth is Athens' little brother. Apollos is going to be there in Corinth. Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. So we're dividing and conquering. We'll, be, we'll try to cover the kingdom in any way we can. And there, finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, well, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he, Paul, said unto them, Well, unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Now this is an interesting dialogue. We saw Apollos briefly, but then he's left behind. Paul moves forward there in Ephesus. And he's checking up on people. He's seeing how they do. Good missionary follow-up. 
But the conversation is fascinating because it revolves around the Holy Ghost. These people have been baptized, but it was a baptism of water. They haven't yet been baptized by fire and by the Holy Ghost. Now, Joseph Smith said that if you only do one baptism without the other, you might as well have immersed a bag of sand because these are two halves of the whole and you need the whole thing. Water washes, but fire purifies, sanctifies. So justification and sanctification, but we need both baptisms. And as we saw earlier, when Peter comes, and, and this is the story of Simon and the, sor the Simon the sorcerer, remember? People have been baptized, but Philip can do that, but it takes a, Peter to come and give the gift of the Holy Ghost. So two separate baptisms, separate authorities, Aaronic and Melchizedek. There's a lot here. And so whoever had taught them earlier, they taught that preparatory gospel. Repentance and remission of sins and preparatory priesthood ordinance. They've been baptized like John baptized. But that preparatory gospel had not yet been found its fulfillment in the rest of the story. In some ways, they're a lot like Apollos as far as their ordinances are concerned. Apollos, it was more the intellect. I know this much, what's next? For them, I've been baptized this far. What's my next baptism? What am I supposed to be immersed in next? And the answer to that is the Holy Ghost. But the way Paul asks the question, I think is so beautiful for every parent, for every church leader, for every ministering sister and brother. Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? It's one thing to join the church, but have you really felt the Spirit since then? In, when you were confirmed, you weren't promised the Spirit. You were commanded to receive the Spirit. I was a receiver back in a previous life when I played football. And that's not a passive position. It's an active effort to get to a place where you can receive the ball and then go do something with it. It's a lot of work. And same with receiving the Holy Ghost. Hands on head, when you were confirmed, you were told that. Receive the Holy Ghost. And here, Paul following up, have you done it yet? Has he come? Have you paid the price to receive the Holy Ghost in your life? You remember what Alma asked the people there in Zarahemla? If you've ever felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? That's a profound question too. If you felt it once, are you feeling it again? Are you feeling it now? My brother on his mission said that he would ask every person he ever met, investigator, new convert, inactive, church leader, anyone he met, he'd always ask, what have you done today to feel the Holy Ghost? Because as he realized, if you don't have an answer for today, you may not have an answer for yesterday and probably don't have an answer for the day before. And maybe it's been a while since you've felt confirmed in these covenants, since you felt the Holy Ghost remind you of the reality of all of this. This is a question worth wrestling with. I received the Holy Ghost, or at least I thought I did, when I was eight or whenever you were baptized. Have I really received it? Or are there things that are getting in my way? And based on that question, then you ask yourself the other question. Unto what was I baptized? Why did I do that? 
Was I only trying to come in a certain distance but not go all the way? Was my baptism really by immersion or was I just dipping the toe? See, John's baptism was for remission of sins. That's great. But to be purged of even the desire for sin, to have your hearts changed, newness of life? Was your baptism merely to join the church? Or was it to join the kingdom of God? Was this a social move for you? Or was this a spiritual transformation? Unto what were you baptized? And if I'm at a moment right now in my life where I'm feeling weak spiritually, and I wonder, I don't think I have received the Holy Ghost since I believed, or at least since the last time I really believed in it. The Spirit feels distant for some reason. Okay, fine, that's okay. It's good to know where you are. But then rethink, unto what were you baptized? And unto what did you go to church? And unto what were you restudying scripture? And unto what were you doing any of these things? Going to the temple, you name it. Was it just social? Was it just surface level? Or do you really want the Holy Ghost more than you want these other things that are keeping you from his companionship? Paul, ingenious missionary, knows exactly the questions to ask. And they're questions we should ask ourselves and each other. On those heels, verse 4, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's what his was for. Wash away sin. Saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. There's more, my friends. That is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. I love that last detail, by the way, because it makes us remember the original twelve and the original messenger to them, Christ. In some ways, this really is a new beginning. And if Christ is Paul, then the original twelve apostles are these new twelve disciples. And we're, we're starting here. They recognized that my first baptism was a baptism of repentance. And I needed that repentance. I knew, I knew that. But I want full immersion in the life of a disciple of Christ. So let's get re-baptized. In the early church, they did it all the time. Even those that were baptized before the church was organized, then got, that was baptism for the remission of sins. Now you need to be re-baptized because there's a church to belong to. And we'll be baptizing you into the church. But then there's another baptism, this time by fire and by the Holy Ghost, that will take you from there. Like I said, Apollos, you've got so much, there's more. And these people, you've been baptized in a beautiful way, a true way. I'm not taking anything away from your past. But there's so much more to step into. I hope we can see that in wherever somebody's coming from on their way to conversion. A Catholic convert is not asked to repudiate Catholicism. They're asked to build upon it. We're not trying to destroy. We're trying to fulfill. A Protestant convert, an atheist convert, a convert out of pure philosophy or any religious faith, there is so much truth in what prepared you for this. But to go from preparation to culmination... Here's the rest of the story. And, and they come running, ready to be baptized in both water and spirit. And what comes upon them? 
as Paul lays hands, we see again the confirmation by the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and they speak with tongues and prophesy. That's why I was mentioning earlier this repetition of Jesus and his 12 apostles. This is a repetition of the day of Pentecost. That we, and we've seen this. We saw it last week with the experience that, that Peter and Cornelius had. That if there's a Jewish day of Pentecost, well, there needs to be a Gentile day of Pentecost too. Here, you finally had the gift of the Holy Ghost. We could call it the gift of the Spirit. And where there's the gift of the Spirit, there are the gifts of the Spirit such as the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Because they finally have the Holy Ghost in their lives. So powerful. From there, verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Now that's a long lesson. You thought unshaken episodes were long? Woo! I've never done one that lasted three months. <laughs> okay, tongue in cheek. I know he's breaking this up, okay? But he keeps for the space of three months repeatedly coming into the synagogue, as was his custom, and speaking boldly, which sounds like Paul to a T. As he's there, he's disputing, and again, that sounds contentious. It's not. The Greek word is reasoning, but reasoning through argumentation, aiming at the head, and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And that persuading is the different side of things. If disputing is to the head, then persuading is to the heart. Now, it's not going to work for everyone. The next verse says, When diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. And there again, way should be capitalized. The way, the common name for Christianity. When they spake evil of it, fine, Paul departed from them and separated the disciples. But he still does what he always does. Disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now, go back to that idea of disputing versus persuading that I mentioned. Because he's disputing, and then some people push back. And so he goes elsewhere, but then disputes some more daily. And he's doing it in a school. Hmm, that's another head place. And again, disputing is just rational argumentation. It doesn't have to be a Bible bash. But it, it's going to be a debate. It's going to be a, an intellectual conversation. But just like Apollos met disciples who believed because of grace, Paul is aiming to accomplish both. And that's the sense of disputing, reasoning with the head, and persuading with the heart. I actually was pricked by that word persuading. And another burning bush, I turned aside to see the Greek, and I was amazed by this one. Because the root word for that Greek word persuade is the Greek word for faith. I was like, wait, wait, what? Faith finds its basis in divine persuasion. That God persuades me by revealing himself to me. I'm persuaded by his presence, by the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm persuaded by the evidence I see all around me in a a world of created order and beauty. I'm persuaded because I've had experiences with God. And it's those persuasive experiences that lay the groundwork for my faith. This assurance of things not seen, this hope for what lies ahead, this trust I have in a God who has persuaded me to trust Him. 
uh, there's something powerful here. And to really, really wrestle with it and think about my own testimony, my own faith, my own journey, right? Have I received the Holy Ghost? Why was I baptized? Where am I headed from here? Where am I and where am I headed? To think about that too. Does my head need to catch it with my heart or does my heart need to catch it with my head? Where does the persuasive power of the gospel come into my life and is that the basis of my faith and things I don't yet know for sure? This is the life of faith and Paul is preaching it magnificently. In verse 10, he goes on. This continued by the space of two years. So three months was nothing. That was just the start. Can you get a sense of how long Paul's been out here? His first mission lasted, oh, two and a half years or so. Second mission, what was he in Corinth for a year and a half? And he went to another, a bunch of other places there too. Now he's here and he's preaching for two more years. But not just here. It starts to spread. This is the ripple that covers the whole pond, or in this case, the ocean. He says, so that all they which dwelt in Asia, throughout all Asia Minor in this case, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Jew and Gentile, we would say. Male, female, we've seen those both. God is no respecter of persons, Peter found out. Well, Paul is embodying that. In fact, it's spreading so far among Jews and Greeks, that Paul can't get to them all himself. So, next verse, God, not Paul, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. That's amazing. Talk about special miracles. So, yeah, special, all right. Those that he performed by the laying on of hands, but also those that he just, there were no, no, no more strength in his hands to keep laying them on. Or people from a distance, and here, just take an apron, take a handkerchief. There was actually a time in, in the swamps that would someday become Nauvoo, where there was so much sickness and, and suffering. On a day they ended up calling the day of God's power, Joseph Smith would go around and heal and bless countless saints until he had no more strength, but still recognizing fellow sufferers, he would, took out his handkerchief and gave it, I think, to Wilford Woodruff or another early church leader and said, just use this and continue to go and bless and heal. And they did. In some ways, this is like Peter's shadow. It's Paul's handkerchief. And I do love that it's a handkerchief and an apron because a handkerchief is like a towel like a napkin. It's something that you would use to wipe the sweat off your brow. And an apron is what you would use to wipe your hands off on if you're some kind of an artisan or worker, like a tent maker, for example. And so symbolically think about this. What is it that allows me to have the power of God so that God can heal people through my ministration? It takes work. It takes Spiritual strength developed through true discipleship. It takes a sweaty brow and a stained apron. It takes handkerchiefs and aprons that evidence that I am trying to bring forth the bread of life by the sweat of my brow, just like Adam was told. You see this symbolism? To me, it's beautiful. And if you want spiritual power to call down the power of heaven, it's going to be grace no matter what. It's going to be a gift from God. It's not something we earn. It's certainly not something God owes us. But he gives it 
to those who are anxiously engaged, those with stains on the handkerchief and apron. Oh, power flows straight on through. But as we've seen so many times, where the church grows, so grows opposition to it. And we'll see it here, verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, and by vagabond we mean wanderers, vagrants, these vagabond Jews are exorcists, those who cast out demons. Sounds a little like the damsel with divination. They've got masters there to control her and use her spirit as some kind of source of priestcraft. Same thing's happening here. These vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits. But they called over them the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And so here, again, you see priestcraft. This is an, uh, something that keeps coming up in the book of Acts as well. We're trying to discern truth from error, sheep from goats, wise from foolish, tares from wheat. And so, yeah, it helps to put side by side priestcraft and priesthood. We just saw a story about Paul's priesthood. Now let's look at the priestcraft of these seven sons of Sceva. Now, the way they're doing this, calling the name of Jesus and invoking Paul as well is so interesting. It's like they recognize, like, this guy's got power. This is Simon the sorcerer recognizing Peter's power. And these sons of Sceva, okay, what, what, how is he saying it? Who is that guy? And we've kind of been faking it. And he's doing the real thing. And if we want to do the real thing, we should probably follow his example. So something about this Jesus guy and something about Paul. Okay, let's put those together into some kind of exorcist creed. We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Now, to me, what becomes almost comical is the response of those evil spirits. Because they're going to recognize the words that are being used, but they, they have second thoughts about their source. Just like Paul had said about the damsel of divination, Good words, wrong source, and so I'll have none of it. Well, not only would God have none of it, but here the evil spirits will have none of it either. It's so funny. Next verse, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are ye? <laughs> Did you catch it? You have these sons of Sceva. Sceva, I don't know who that guy is. High priest, yeah, whatever. High priest of something, but not of the, the true faith. And you got the right language. I recognize Jesus, believe me. I can't stand any time he gets brought up. He's always coming to torment us before the time. And this Paul is such a pest. He's been casting out friends of mine left and right. And in, in taking their place, infusing them with a true spirit of the true God. So yeah, I know him too. But who did you say you were? You got all the right language. Can you show me your, your license? And they've got, they've got none. And that should tell us something. That just like the stains on the handkerchief and apron, it takes real work. It takes true authority. It's not about name dropping and something about Jesus and something about Paul. It's not a question of words and names as was said before by Gallius. It's a question of real priesthood power and true authority from God. 
Paul has that authority. Jesus is that authority. And the evil spirit recognizes it, but doesn't recognize the hands that claim to be holding it. Actually, this is another one of those Greek burning bushes. Because when I saw the word repeated, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but we don't know you. I wondered about that knowledge. Because we've been talking about spiritual knowledge and temporal knowledge. We've been talking about head and heart. And I just, for some reason this time, I'd never done this before, I looked up the Greek originals just to see what those words were. And sure enough, it was two different words for knowledge. In Spanish, that's true, where it's the saber and the conocer, and do I know things like street smarts, or do I know things like personal acquaintance? And it's not exactly that in Greek, but there are two different Greek words used here for knowledge, and they're on different tiers, different levels. In fact, other translations take advantage of that to clarify it. So, for example, the New International Version, the evil spirit says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about. I really know Jesus. I've heard of this Paul guy. Or the English Standard Version, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. And it's weird to say that I love an evil spirit, but I love this one for its careful semantics to say, Jesus strikes fear in my bones. Ever since he cast all of us out of pre-mortality and seems to cast us out of mortality more than we want also. I know him in ways I wish I didn't. Paul seems to be some new guy on the scene. But yeah, he's a powerful pest. He has authority. I know about him. I've heard of this guy and what he's been doing. His fame is spreading, but it's not fame that he's after. It's faith he's trying to engender, and it's faith in Christ. No wonder he invokes Christ. It's a powerful, powerful experience. From there, verse 16, this undeterred evil spirit that, oh yeah, you talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. How does he respond? The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. He just like jumped all over these sons of Sceva and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, such that many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Seems so fitting and yet so ironic that the evil spirit that true authority always overcomes ends up overcoming those with false authority to the point that they're beaten, they're prevailed over. Instead of letting God prevail, now the evil spirit has prevailed on them. And then to, be, to run out naked and wounded? Well, their pride certainly was wounded. And naked suggests that they were uncovered by the authority and power and atonement of Jesus Christ. And yet others are now starting to believe in that power and authority. They're believing in that name. That is one good thing about error. It makes truth all the clearer. So verse 19, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. In the aftermath of the sons of Sceva being shown up, 
and the authority of a true messenger being made crystal clear, anyone else that was going down the path of a Simon the Sorcerer or of a damsel of divination or of a son of Sceva, they all came forth and said, these books of the magic arts, the curious arts, they're worthless. Well, actually, they're worth a lot. I paid a lot for these things. But rather than, I don't know, sell them on eBay or do donate them at DI, I just want to get rid of them entirely because not only are they worthless, they're harmful. And I don't want anyone else to have them. So they destroy all of this. 50,000 pieces of silver worth because of the worth of souls is far greater than that. They want real power. This stuff's worthless. Years ago in seminary, we didn't have a book burning. But it was interesting. I can't remember all the different places that we had talked about it. But we talked about things that were causing problems spiritually and ought to be left behind. Maybe one of them was Joseph in Potiphar's, at Potiphar's house. When Potiphar's wife comes and lays hold upon his coat, grabs it. And what does he do? Leaves it in her hand and gets him out. If this is causing me problems, it's got to go. And he got rid of it. Or like Achan in the battle of, uh, battle of Jericho, and he ends up holding on to this wedge of gold and the pieces of silver and the goodly Babylonish garment. And it costs Israel a victory. People lose their lives, and then ultimately Achan and his family lose their life as well. Just let the Babylonish garment go. You don't need it. David and Bathsheba, just look away. You don't need that. And whatever it is that is tying you down, loose yourself. Get rid of it. Burn the book. And my students started taking that literally. It was the most fascinating thing. Where they'd come, every once in a while I'd have a student come in with like a, a shoebox. And they'd offer it to me. I'm like, what is this? I, I, did, you, did you know my shoe size? They're like, oh, it's not shoes. And they'd open it up. I'd open it up, and sometimes it would be full of the shards of smashed up CDs. I'm like, what's this? And I said, you know, I've just been taking more seriously the gospel we've been studying, and that, that, I've had so much music with explicit lyrics and just things that were offending the spirit. I could feel that, and I decided to get rid of it all. So I went out in the backyard with a hammer or a hatchet, and it was kind of fun. But here's the remains. Or people would come in with, like, this is older, so it was like a VHS cassette that was charred and burned and warped and twisted. And like, oh yeah, stuck that in the fireplace. And I just brought out the remains. It was a movie that was inappropriate. I'm glad that the name has been melted off the top so you don't know what I was watching. But I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. It was offending the spirit, making it hard to live the gospel. So here you go. I don't know why they always brought it to me. I became like the Babylonian dumping grounds. Uh, and here's, here's the contraband from the wicked world, and you'll know what to do with it. I'm like, oh, okay. And one girl I remember came in with a like a shopping bag full of Ziploc bags with cloth in it. And I'm like, are you quilting? Because there's little squares of cloth. They're like, no, but I could. Well, that used to be my clothing. But I went through my wardrobe and saw the things that I now consider inappropriate. And I don't want to wear them. It's not who I am. And so I cut them up to avoid any temptation to re-wear them. And here you go. One girl who did that actually had a friend with her who was torn. I could see it. And she was like talking to herself. I know I should. I've got that one. But it's so cute on me. And how do I? I, I 
Well, she eventually won her inner wrestle and came in later with like multiple bags. I couldn't believe how much she was donating to the cause. And I'm like, do you even have a wardrobe left? She's like, barely, but I'm so excited to go shopping and get things that are more appropriate. Oh, these were amazing teenagers. And just to see their enthusiasm to take, I don't know if it was 50,000 pieces of silver worth, but for them to see the value of virtue and to trade it out. And said, get rid of this to make room for this. They inspired me. My students always do. But when this is over, verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit. There's true determination, which is Paul to the T. When he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, he purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. That had happened at the end of his second mission. I got to go back. I just really feel I need to be there for the feast. And now, for whatever reason, third mission needs to come to an end, and I need to go back to Jerusalem again. But as usual, I'm not going to stay for long because, Paul said, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Oh, now we're really talking. You've been to the intellectual capital of the empire at Athens. Now it's time to go see the political capital of the empire and preach the gospel there. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. So yeah, you guys go on. They're going to need you there. There are still people in Macedonia that would love to appear to you in vision and say, come and help us. Well, don't wait for the vision. Just know their need. But he himself, Paul, stayed in Asia for a season. Probably wanting to see how the saints do. Probably wanting to confirm them in their faith. Oh, there's so many needs in so many places. Let's divide and conquer. Let's strengthen and hopefully help them become independent. Let's leave messages from central apostles and prophets. Let's confirm them in the faith. Let's make sure they receive the Holy Ghost, which will lead them aright from this point forward. You go there, I'll come here. Eventually, I've got to go to Jerusalem. In fact, eventually, I've got to go to Rome. And that's where things are going to end for Paul, as far as mortal mission is concerned. But verse 23, yet more opposition and once again, in the form of some kind of false religion that's become an economic power source. We've seen so many of those. Here's this one. The same time there arose no small stir about that way. And again, capitalize the W. The way being the church. And the church is making waves. And the ripples are spreading. So no small stir. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. This is how we make our money. We are silversmiths, and Diana is the local deity. In Greek mythology, it will be Artemis. But in Roman mythology, it is Diana. And either way, we're in Ephesus, and Ephesus, Diana is the patron saint of the city of Ephesus. Diana has a, or Artemis, has a temple in Ephesus that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the world wasn't ancient back then. It was modern as far as they were concerned. And so it's like everybody knows what Ephesus is known for. And no wonder we make a killing on this, because all the pilgrims that come into town and want to see one of the world's best wonders... Well, they want to go home with a souvenir, right? I mean, if this is how the whole city 
worships Diana or Artemis, she must be really worthy of worship. So if I could have like a little mini temple of Diana, if I could have some kind of silver shrine or an amulet or some token of my being here, it'd be like bringing the wonder of the world back home with me. And I can continue to worship Diana or Artemis from the convenience of my own home. So how much is that going to cost? And cha-ching, ching the silversmiths like Demetrius, their eyes light up. Again, did you catch the juxtaposition? You got those with the books of curious arts. Destroy them all. And I don't care if I'm out 50,000 pieces of silver. As opposed to those who work in silver, know its value, but know what its value can be to them if they sell it to people who are too superstitious. Oh, this is an altar to a known god, a known goddess in this case, and it's Diana or Artemis. But that's the concern of Demetrius and those that share in the same craft. Priest craft, another element that we're dealing with here. Why would I ever listen to a Paul the Apostle? Why would I ever get baptized in his church? Why would I want his spirit when that spirit seems to be driving out spirits that make us wealthy? So no. It's interesting, sometimes if somebody doesn't want to join the church, it's worth pondering, what do they stand to lose? And is that, what's keeping, is that what is keeping them back? Sometimes I'll even ask that when somebody's thinking of leaving the church and wrestling with issues, and not in an accusatory way. I'm not saying, so what sin are you trying to avoid repenting of? No, I don't go there. But sometimes I will ask, in as open and non-confrontational way as I can, are there any ulterior belief, or are there any ulterior motives for your disbelief? I mean, I'll admit I have ulterior motives for belief. I mean, my family are members, and it's, it's brought me so much joy in my life. It makes, makes sense to me. It's clear. But that's not the only reason I believe. Okay? Head, heart, convinced, converted. It, these are things I believe with all my soul. So it's not just ulterior motives. In your case, are there, what are your motives? It's like, unto what were you baptized? Well, in this case, unto what are you being unbaptized? Unto what are you leaving? Where are you going to? Why are you leaving? And are there any ulterior motives at play? What do you stand to gain by your departure? What do you stand to lose if you stay? And that's what Demetrius is wrestling with. We're going to lose our jobs, or lose our craft, lose our source of income. So verse 26, he goes on, Moreover ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, right here in our hometown, but almost throughout all Asia, and when you take anywhere in modern Turkey, they're going to know about what's going on out here. Throughout almost all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. I mean, isn't that what he said up on Mars Hill, Areopagus? He's looking at, pointing at altars and calling out ignorance and saying God is done winking. He wants us to repent of our idolatry. Well, that's what this guy does. And he's casting out divination spirits. And he's, <laughs> the sons of Sceva are running around naked, uh, so overwhelmed and, and, and prevailed upon by the realities of what Paul is preaching. I don't want that to be us. I mean, if we allow him to say the same things here, think about what will happen to our jobs, 
and our incomes. He says, so that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. There's that wonder of the ancient world. What's going to happen to our city? Remember, that's what they brought up in an earlier mission of Paul? It's the, he's, whole, he's turning the whole city into some kind of an uproar. I'm just trying to be a good citizen here. He's going to affect the economy negatively. Is that what you're worried about? Is it Diana's glory you're trying to preserve, or is it your own? Oh, this temple is beautiful. It could remain that as a tourist attraction. Just no longer as a place of pagan worship. Because there's a, a true God in town. Or at least a true messenger of the true God. But he's really concerned. By the way, Artemis, or Diana, as I said, what are they the goddess, what is she the goddess of? Fascinating. She is the goddess of the hunt, of childbirth, of chastity. And in some ways, just like Lydia saw the real purpose of the purple, and just like the jailer saw what real washing and which side of the bars, uh, there's so many of these beautiful ironies that we see throughout what Luke is writing here. In this case, the goddess of the hunt, you've been hunting for the wrong things. But if you will seek Jesus and feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. You'll find what you're looking for, and it'll change everything. There's the God of the hunt. It's Christ. What about childbirth? Oh, I know that you're nervous going into labor and delivery, sisters. But the rebirth is what Paul is preaching. And forget the goddess of childbirth. Look at a God who wants you all to be born again of water and of the Spirit. Newness of life. And chastity. How many times last year in the Old Testament did we see covenant fidelity taught? And the analogy of idolatry and adultery tied together. And so it's not about chastity toward Artemis. It's about, about being true to your covenants with Christ. And that's what Paul is preaching as well. Now in this case, verse 28, when they heard these sayings, I mean, Demetrius was pretty convincing here. They started fingering the coins in their pockets and wondering how many more would come. What will this conversion cost us? As they thought about it, as they heard these things, they were full of wrath. And cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, it's in her honor that we're up in arms. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And this theater has actually been unearthed by archaeologists. It would have fit like 25,000 people. Can you imagine this whole city full of wrath, filled with confusion? Grabbing people we don't even know anything about. Gaius, uh, Aristarchus, who were they? I don't care. They were there in Macedonia with Paul. He, they're with him. And thus, guilt by association. Drag them in. Let's rough them up. Let's, I don't know how, if Diana cares much for human sacrifice, but let's get rid of those that would oppose her. And yet, it doesn't phase Paul at all. 
In verse 30, when Paul would have entered in unto the people, he's like, let me add him. Uh, there's 25,000 people out there in the theater. Great. If it's a theater they're used to watching incredible things performed, and I will perform the work of God. I got an audience here, and let's give them something to listen to. But, no, 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 Paul, Paul, calm down, calm down. When Paul would have entered into the, unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. We would say, over our dead body, but it's your dead body we're worried about. So, no, you cannot go in there. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring that he would not adventure himself into the theater. And adventure would better say venture. Don't venture yourself. Don't go in there. This is not some fun adventure. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a date with death. And what you're up against, this silversmith guild, they have rallied the troops and stirred up the people, and it is mob violence that's going to tear you limb from limb. So don't go in. Now, like I said before, Paul, as usual, is totally unfazed by this. Let me at him. Uh, God said he'd be with me, and I would suffer no hurt, at least none of the permanent type. So, I mean, thanks for your concern, but I've got more important things to do. One of my favorite stories about President Kimball was told by Robert D. Hales in a conference talk sometime after the fact. He was describing a trip that he was on with President Kimball to Bolivia for a bunch of church meetings, an area conference, something like that. And it was going to be a busy weekend, as they always tend to be for general authorities. Well, on the flight there, La Paz, Bolivia is one of the highest elevation cities on earth. There's like no oxygen up there. It's hard to breathe, hard to function. And President Kimball seemed old at the beginning of his ministry. Nobody thought he'd live long, small and, and seemingly frail. And so the other general authorities on this trip with him were really concerned about preserving President Kimball's health and energy. And so Elder Hales, kind of a junior companion there, was looking over the, the schedule of meetings with President Kimball, and this meeting, and that, and this, and this, and this, and, but some of them were crossed out. And President Kimball stopped him and said, wait, Elder Hales, why, why are these meetings crossed out? And a little sheepishly, Elder Hales said, well, uh, th those are rest periods. And President Kimball just looked at him and said, are you tired, Elder Hales? And that took Elder Hales back. In fact, he joked and said, I actually was. And, I was. and that was only the beginning. I was going to become so tired during that weekend. I could barely keep up with, it, with President Kimball at all. I mean, I was a young man, but the altitude was getting to me. And my head was spinning and I just running out of energy. And yet not only did President Kimball go to every meeting, including the ones we'd earmarked as rest periods for him and that we would go instead. No, he came to them all. He stayed after them all. He shook the hands of like every Bolivian saint he could. The guy was tireless, and yet how could he not be tired? Well, after a whirlwind weekend, on the flight back home, Elder Hales said he sat next to President Kimball and reviewed some of the events and said, President Kimball, I'm sorry, we were not trying to hold you back. We're not trying to keep you from your service. We're just worried about your health is all. That's the only reason we had rest periods, though I could have used them. Uh, it's the only reason we had... To put it simply, President Kimball, we weren't trying to hold you back. We were trying to save you. Which is exactly what these saints were doing for Paul. 
don't go in there. Please look out for yourself, or at least let us look out for you. We're trying to save you. But you know what President, Hinkley, or President Kimball said in response? That's a classic Kimball. When Elder Hale said, we're trying to save you, President Kimball said, Elder Hales, I don't want to be saved. I want to be exalted. What a difference. He went on to say, Elder Hales, I'm not afraid of death, if that's what you were afraid of for me. I'm afraid of going back to God and him telling me, Spencer, you could have done more. And President Kimball acted accordingly. Plenty of sweat on his handkerchief, plenty of stains on his apron. He was a worker. Now, I'm please, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to run faster than you have strength. I'm not urging toxic perfectionism on anyone. And neither was President Kimball or Elder Hales. But to, but to run with patience the race that is set before us, to serve God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, to give it all we've got, to aim for exaltation rather than simply being saved from some kind of mortal discomfort. I love President Kimball for that. I love Paul for the same reason. It's inspiring to me, especially in times where I know I need to be doing more. From that point, verse 32, some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together, which is hilarious, or at least would be if this wasn't such a, mo a point of danger for Paul. They, some are going one direction. Some, I mean, it's this massive theater filled with people, right? You got Demetrius pumping up and riling up the silversmiths and everybody else. It's against our city, and the entire economy of the region is going to suffer if we allow these Christians to preach their message. Some are saying one, some another, but everyone's confused. They don't know why they're even there. That's, that's the hilarious part. They knew not wherefore they were come together. It sounds a lot like those philosophers on Mars Hill. Like, well, I don't know, we're just here to hear some new thing. Somebody's got some new TED Talk to give. Great, we showed up. These are people just following the crowd and going along with this herd mentality. I see that so often among those that are attacking the church. Well, I read this thing, and it raised all these issues. I'm like, true, do you understand any of those issues? Or did you just memorize the laundry list? And you can spit it out, and, but you don't really know why you've come together. Now, in this story, keep reading, they drew Alexander out of the multitude. We keep meeting believers that we don't know the backstory for. But here's, I love this Alexander guy. He's drawn out, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. So this is, this is a Christian Jew, or Jewish Christian. He's a convert. Alexander, another great Greek name, by the way. He's great in his own way. But the Jews are putting him forward, like, go defend us, go defend us. It's like, we're not going to throw Paul in there because he'll get eaten alive, but we're going to throw Alexander in? Whew, okay, Alexander, hope you can handle this. Well, courageously he comes forth. He begins beckoning with the hand because he wants to defend the doctrine of Christ. We're not trying to destroy the local economy. We're not doing things against the law. Alexander is standing in for Paul, just like Jason had before. But while he's trying to quiet the crowds, notice the next phrase, 
But when they knew that he was a Jew, and that's all they cared about, not the subtleties between Judaism and Christianity, it's just, he's not a Gentile, he's not, he's not one of us, he's a Jew. And once they knew that, that he was going to try to defend something they thought indefensible, then forget it. All with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! That's what they were chanting earlier back in verse 28. And now they're doing it for two hours straight? Have you ever been... This is how things used to be politically. We've, we've calmed down a little bit, but not always. Now the now political speeches are interrupted by cheers of applause when you rile up the base. But sometimes, if you're present among your enemies, you get drowned out by their boos and hisses. Back in the day, that happened all the time. And order in the court, no wonder you needed a gavel to, <laughs> to knock on wood loud enough that it would get people's attention. Order in the court was hard to come by. And there was no order in this so-called court of public opinion. And when a man was trying to calmly defend his own position and explain himself, if people were more noble, they would have been open-minded enough to hear him out and weigh the options and search the scriptures to see what is true. I love these middle chapters of the book of Acts because there really is so much here about discerning truth and error and coming to know for yourself and weighing the options. Here they're not weighing a thing. They're instead, I don't even know why I'm here, but this is where everybody ran in and so like a lemming, I ran right alongside them. Where are we going? I don't know. With them. Okay. And what are we doing? I don't know. Whatever they're doing. What are we yelling? I don't know. Oh, I do know this. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And for two solid hours, they're drowning out anyone's opportunity to hear otherwise. And as one who studies anti-religious rhetoric, that seems to be happening a lot these days. As people just keep reiterating the same old things, the same tired complaints, but incessantly hoping that people won't take the time to hear any words in defense of the faith. This, I've never spent more time in my own study on these verses than I did this time preparing for this lesson because I was just oh, almost arrested. My attention was arrested here as I realized it still, it still happens. The herd mentality is still rushing in, going with the flow, joining the crowd, chanting whatever it is that's being said, and puppeting and parroting instead of really discerning and deciding. So interesting. With that, verse 35, when the town clerk, poor guy, I'd hate to have his job, when the town clerk had appeased the people, however he did it, Maybe their voices were hoarse after two hours of shouting. He said to them, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? It's like, come on, people. Forget what all Asia thinks about Paul. All Asia knows about Ephesus, that we are a, we are a city built to the honor of Diana. 
we're synonymous with the worship of Artemis. Okay? We, we know it's the wonder of the world, friends. So, seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, nobody's going to be able to take down the temple of Artemis, seeing that, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, in a better translation, they're not plunderers of the temple of Artemis. They're not trying to take it down stone by stone. No. Nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. They're not trying to do that either. So, my friends, calm down. Don't believe the rumors that have spread and that you're now helping to spread that these Christians or followers of the way or whatever they call themselves, that they're trying to take down the Roman Empire politically or religiously or economically. We're going to be fine. Just let things go and be quiet about it. In some ways, this is a lot like what we saw Gamaliel say back in Acts chapter 5. When everybody's up in arms against Peter and John and the rest, and Gamaliel says, oh, calmate, calmate. It, it, be patient. There have been other nobodies that claim to be somebodies, and time told. Eventually their movements fizzled and faded, and we didn't have to do anything against it. Error will collapse under its own weight. You don't have to pile on it more persecution. And this wise town clerk is basically saying the same thing. Just be quiet, let them alone, time will tell. And time will come down on the side of Diana. Everybody knows that. Well, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, my dear town clerk, yeah, there's not a whole lot going on in Ephesus anymore. And we call it a wonder of the ancient world because it's no longer a wonder of the modern one. In fact, I've met a lot of people of other faiths, but I don't think I've ever met a worshiper of Artemis. I've never heard anybody shout, great is Diana of the Ephesians. <laughs> Not for two seconds, let alone two hours. And yet, there are Christians all across the earth. The great world religion, taught by these seed pickers, <laughs> taught by tent makers and Sellers of purple. It's amazing to me what time has told us all about the kingdom of God rolling forth. Just give it time. It'll keep on rolling. And thus, verse 38, the town clerk says to the silversmiths, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him, if they have a matter against any man, look, the law is open, and there are deputies, let them implead one another. In other words, let them sue each other. Let them take them to court. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. And the chapter ends. To me, it's interesting. This Again, this town's clerk is very wise. And he's trying to calm the multitudes. If they've done something wrong, and I can't see anything that they have, take them to court. Can we avoid vigilante justice? Can we avoid the herd mentality and the mob kind of approach to things? Think it through. Trust justice. 
And if you do think they've done something wrong, take them to court. I wish that the Missourians in the 1830s had a town clerk like this. Alexander Donovan was the closest thing they had. But to go along with the mob mentality and the so-called militias that were driving the saints out of the state at the edge of the sword or the point of the gun, there, that was extra legal, which is just a nice way of saying illegal. That was mob violence. That was vigilante injustice. And we've got to be better than that. Okay? Paul was. But Paul wouldn't be phased whether it was legal or illegal. Nothing could slow him down. And we see more of that in chapter 20. In chapter 20, Paul will keep preaching, keep prophesying, and we'll keep going. We'll see more persecution as well, but none of that phases him. So start in verse 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them. Okay, fine. Thanks for saving my life. Thanks for not sending me into the, or not letting me go into the theater. He embraced them, and then he departed for to go into Macedonia. Beautiful example of the love between missionary and convert. Fellowship among the saints. He loves them. They love him. Embrace, and then departs. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, which again sounds like Paul, he came into Greece, so further south from Macedonia, and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, there's, he's never completely free of their opposition. As he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So, okay, for some reason, instead of taking ship, let me walk back around, around the, the Aegean Sea. I'm sure there's going to be people that need much exhortation there as well. So anywhere Paul went, happened to go, he seemed to have two companions ever at his side. Uh, I mean, Barnabas would come and go, and sometimes Silas was with him, and sometimes not, and Aquila and Priscilla, sometimes they're together, sometimes they're apart. But two constant companions for Paul was success and opposition. He is going to find oh, encouragement and people to preach to and, and, and good deeds to perform along with those that would oppose. That seems to sound like life to me. Those two will always be on our right hand and left as well. But here, verse 4, there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, these going before tarried for us at Troas, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them into Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now, I flew over that, those verses, but in some ways probably could have skipped them without us missing much. Because I don't know those people. Tychicus and Trophimus? And places like Troas and Berea? I, I don't know. Like I said, there's no map quiz or matching the cast of characters and where, they, where Paul met them. Don't worry about that. But I do read them for the simple purpose that these were names of people and places that Paul came to know and love along the way. If I were writing my own missionary journeys, I'm sure that names like Pontesuela and Utuado, or Caguas, or Mayagüez, Trujillo Alto, Ponce, those would all be names that 
meant nothing to you, but they mean everything to me because those were places that I served, filled with people I came to love. And so I just want to honor each one. Now, as Paul is going through all of those places, meeting all those people, verse 7, what's he doing? Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. Now, the fact that this is the first day of the week, when we usually talk about Sabbath, hmm, something's shifted here. He usually goes to the synagogue and preaches on the Sabbath. That's a very Jewish thing to do. But here, it's now the first day of the week. The Sabbath was the seventh day for Jews. Well, now that's not Saturday. It's now Sunday for the Christians. And on this first day of the week, what are they doing? They're coming together, gathering. They're breaking bread. That sounds sacramental. They're taking communion. Paul is preaching unto them. So they're studying and hearing the word of God together. Are we seeing the shift from Jewish Sabbath to Christian Lord's Day? That's what they often called it, to differentiate it from the Sabbath of the Jews. The Lord's Day is taking shape as a time to come together in all of these acts of fellowship and worship. And that day, I mean, he's about to leave tomorrow, and he knows it. He's ready to depart. So he wants to milk this first day for all it's worth, because it's the Christian first day, but it's his last day among the Christians. So what does he do? He continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus. I love this kid because he's so true to form. He's there. He showed up for church. But man, this guy preaching, he just goes on and on and on. It's midnight. And he's, he's sitting in a windowsill. The place is probably so packed with people because Paul's mission has been so successful, and maybe they know it's his last night among them. So they're all staying there in rapt attention. But Eutychus, listening from a window, notice what happens. Being fallen into a deep sleep, and can you blame him? As Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Hello. Have you ever been in a school lecture or a church talk that just seems to be going on endlessly? Of course, you're unshaken listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, you, you're all Eutychus out there, aren't you? You still awake? Please do not listen to unshaken from a third story windowsill, okay? Eutychus falls asleep, bless his heart, and if you ever kind of doze and then kind of lift your head up, but you kind of jerk, well, he doesn't even have time to jerk his head up because he falls three stories and, and dies on impact. He's taken up dead. Now, verse 10, amid the shock and horror of this moment, picture Paul being interrupted by the sound of the thud and then the gasp and then the people scrambling and picking up and trying to find signs of life and finding none. Well, verse 10, Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. At least it soon will be again. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed, and they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted, which is quite the understatement. Yeah, not a little comforted. Yeah, I'd say a lot of comfort. This young man, 
was raised from the dead by Paul. Now, again, I say it tongue-in-cheek because you and I are so used to eternally long lessons. But like I joked before, I've never taught a three-month one. And in this case, I've never gone till midnight and then been interrupted because one of my hearers died in the middle of my, of my lesson. And knowing that I'm not done, I still got more to do. Eutychus, you can't get out of my lesson that easily. Get back here. And he falls upon him and embraces him and raises from the dead and then keeps on preaching until sun up. Because that's when I'm finally going to leave town. <laughs> I, lo I love Paul here. Nobody gets out of one of his lessons early. And even death is no excuse. So keep on preaching, brother. And he does. Well, in verse 13, it's now time to go. And Eutychus is probably like, okay, fine. Now can I go sleep in my own bed? But... Luke tells us, we went before to ship. So somewhere along the way, Luke has rejoined the, the mission companionship. And we sailed unto Assos, there intending to take in Paul. Remember, they were going to go by ship, but Paul was going to walk around, stay on land, and preach the gospel along the way. But when they get to Assos, there we're going to take in Paul. That's a good place to meet. For so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. You go ahead. I'll meet you at the dock. I got some things to do, some people to, to raise from their spiritual death. And when he met with us at Assos, we took him in and came to Mytilene. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. And that's just Paul working his way back around the coast of Asia Minor, eventually to head back home. Verse 16, for Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Like we saw at the end of mission number two, he's dying to get back home at the end of mission number three, and he wants to be there in time for another feast, another festival. In this case, it's clear it's the day of Pentecost and I love he wants to be back for that. Because what a great day to celebrate. The shedding forth of the power of God, the gifts of the Spirit through the gift of the Holy Ghost. People from all the world hearing the gospel preached in their own tongue. I mean, the church in the book of Acts really emerges from that. The pebble that was thrown into that water has been rippling ever since. But the irony there is Paul wasn't a Christian then. He was a Jew still adamantly against the Christians. And yet when he embraced the Christian faith, he embraced the Christian festivals. For him to remember something that he wasn't there for originally is what converts do all across the earth every time they dress up as American pioneers. I don't have any ancestors that were pioneers or Americans, some could say. And yet this is the shared history of my faith and it's my history too. And I want to remember it. I want to commemorate it. Now, verse 18, we are going to see Paul's oh, missionary message to fellow members. It's one of the only ones that we get from him. Usually he's preaching to Jews or to Gentiles. Here it's to fellow Christians. And it's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever read. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. You know what I've been doing. I... I've been trying to lead by example 
I have been tireless in my service, fearless in my approach to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know it. You know it from the very beginning, from the first day. And it's been that way at all seasons. Not up and down. There's such a steadiness in the spiritual strength of Paul. Such a steadiness in his missionary labors. And here he describes what that entailed. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. It's not just with all his heart, mind, and strength, but all humility of mind. And with many tears. The mind is the intellectual, the tears are the emotional, and he's giving all he's got to the service of God. With many tears and temptations, and a better translation for that would be trials, tribulation, and he's faced plenty of that. So I have served God from the very beginning, through all seasons, with all humility of mind, with many tears, with temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And that opposition is always hiding around the very next corner as well. And yet, despite all that, you also know how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. Not a thing. If I thought it could be of benefit to you, I gave it with all I had. I had kept back nothing that was profitable, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. This has only been three verses so far, but this is like the best missionary homecoming talk you can see in so short a space. Here he is on his way back. He's leaving these Christian disciples, but he's telling them, it's not just that I'm leaving you. I'm leaving it all with you. I've given you all that I've got. I, I hope that I could say the same at the end of my mission. I left a piece of my heart in Puerto Rico when I was 21. I left a piece of my heart at Lone Peak Seminary when I was transferred somewhere else. I left a big piece of me in Tennessee because I gave all that I had when I was there. And there's a piece of me still at the U of U, and there, I hope there's a piece of me at BYU when I'm done, 20 years from now, whatever it might be. Oh, my friends, are we, are we keeping something back, or are we giving all we've got in whatever calling we're serving in, in whatever place in the vineyard we find ourselves? In Paul's case, he taught it, and he showed it. Things he said and examples he set. He did it publicly. He did it house to house. Everywhere, all seasons, he was this kind of dedicated servant of God. Verse 21, his mission homecoming address keeps continuing. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that he distinguishes between the two. Not just the two, meaning Jews and Greeks. He's covering all of that. And he'll teach Jew and Greek and, and male and female and old and young and rich and poor. You name it. He is no respecter of persons because he knows the Lord isn't. But the other differentiation, repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. I think we tie all those just into Jesus. And that's fine. Faith in Christ and repentance through Christ and so on. But it's repentance toward God. It's the Father we've offended. It's his perfect law and perfect love that we've sinned against. But because of that love, he sends Christ. And if we have faith through Christ, then we can have repentance toward God. Interesting balance there. I, don't, I, think I, I want to think about that more in terms of my own repentance. I'm reconciling my will to the Father 
And the Father is allowing that to happen by sending his Son. So my repentance toward God is prompted by my faith toward Christ. And then he says, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. He's always bound in the Spirit. He's always so determined, focused, the Spirit's guiding him every step of the way. But here, he only guides him in part. Notice what he says next. I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Although there is one thing I do know, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. And that stands to reason because they've been that, it's been that way every city he's ever been. And yet for every city to point him toward Jerusalem and remind him that's really where the suffering is going to start. Bonds and afflictions abide me. I mean, abide means to stay, to live there, to dwell. And it's as if he's saying, oh yeah, those afflictions and bonds, they're just waiting for me. They're not going anywhere. And the only way for me to avoid them is to avoid Jerusalem. But the Spirit has told me I've got to go. I'm bound in the Spirit to go into Jerusalem. I, I don't know everything I'm going to face. In some way, that reminds me of what Nephi said when he's going back to Jerusalem to get the brass plates. Remember this? And he fails the first time, and he fails the second time, and he's suffered at his brother's hands as a result. But then, undeterred, he goes back the third time and says, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things that I should do. The Spirit's with me, but He doesn't fill in every blank. The Spirit's guiding me, but that light is pointing me forward. There's still some things off in the peripheral that I don't see very clearly. But in Paul's case, through the mists of that darkness, he can hear the howls of ravening wolves. He can hear the shouts and cries of people that oppose him. I don't know everything that lies ahead, but I do know the road is going to be rough. This is going to be difficult, and yet I am determined. And nothing will keep me from moving forward. See, it's with that in mind that verse 23 moves into 24. And really, you ought to read them with no pause in between. So let me rewind and try again. From the end of verse 23, I go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to befall me. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. They will not move me out of my appointed course. I'm going to do what God has asked, and I will not be moved. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. I know you count it dear unto yourselves, and I'm so honored by that. I will miss you too. But it's not my physical life I'm trying to preserve. I don't want to be saved. I want to be exalted, right? Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's all that matters to him. Not his own mortal life, but the eternal life he's trying to prepare people for. He cares not about personal safety or personal convenience. He cares about his covenants 
And ever since he was called to be a chosen vessel of the Lord, he has been pouring out his life, wasting and wearing it out, to quote the Doctrine and Covenants, in the service of God. I love Paul for this. He wants to finish his course with joy. Even though he knows that the end of that course is suffering, it's martyrdom. But that's joy for him. I get to return to Jesus. It's that same joy that Peter and John felt when they came out of, after being roughed up by the leadership back in Jerusalem, threatening them. It's only going to get worse. Well, in that case, it's only going to get better. We count it an honor to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Paul feels the same. But to finish his course. This is the same Paul that will write to Timothy later. I have... I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. Same phrase he wrote about here, or said about here. I have kept the faith. And I pray that the same will apply to all of us. But in Paul's case, verse 25, Now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. This really is my final goodbye to you. This is it. From here, it's back to Jerusalem, and there, it's on to Rome. And I'll never again get to come back and see how you do. Wherefore, as parting words, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Again, this is Jacob shaking off his garments to the Nephites. Again, this is King Benjamin saying, I've done everything I could. Hopefully this is all of us bidding farewell to people that we've served and loved with the reminder that I did everything I could for you. I held nothing back. And so his final advice in light of all that, oh yes, all ears and all eyes would be on him. And again, it's almost like the, the last wish of a dying person. And here's his, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock. So take heed. Beware. Open your eyes. Look around. Be careful. Look out for yourselves. Look out for each other. The whole flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And what should you do with that heed that you're taking? You must feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I love the verse 28. Partly because of what it says about Jesus, partly because of what it says about Paul. Paul sees in the church the blood of Christ. He sees people for whom Christ suffered and died. He purchased this, this church with his own life's blood. The least we could do is offer our own blood, sweat, and tears, our napkins and aprons, to move the work of God forward. And to do it because the Holy Ghost has called us to that work. Not just because someone else gave us an assignment. This, to me, speaks worlds of difference between just having a calling and assuming that, yes, it's my bishop, or it's my reciting president, or it's my elders' corner president. Somebody asked me to do something, and sure, I guess I'll do it. It's a whole other thing when the Holy Ghost hath made you an overseer. Overseer here, by the way, can also be translated bishop. It's that kind of shepherd of the soul. 
And for Paul to feel from the Holy Ghost, I have responsibility for these people. This is more than a calling. This is a personal ministry. And it's one that the Lord has extended directly to me through the Holy Ghost. I can't help but do this. In my case, yes, I have a job to teach the gospel, but it's only a job because I have to be able to pay the bills. This is the ministry where it's not just my students that are paying tuition. It's people around the world that I feel moved by the Holy Ghost to minister to. And emails that I try to respond but can't keep up with. And Zoom calls that I never find enough time to, to keep up with. And there are starfish on the sea that need to be helped back into the water. And, and I feel it keenly. There's something that changes in our hearts when the Holy Ghost calls us to be an overseer. It's the love that a parent has for a child. It's the change that occurs in a missionary's heart when they're no, no longer serving out of duty, but finally serving out of love. It's that bishop that... I've had so many bishops like that, including the bishop that right now just reaches out on occasion to check in on us and how we're doing, and it, it's so far beyond because he has to, because it's his calling. You understand this verse? We've got to look out for ourselves because of what we're up against. We've got to look out for each other. And there is so much room for improvement in, within me and probably within all of us to, lead, to, to live up to what Paul is giving us there. But part of what's driving him and frankly, part of what's driving me too is what Paul says in the next couple of verses. In verse 29, this flock he's been talking about, it's going to need loving shepherding. For I know this, Paul says, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Other translations call them ravenous wolves. How fangs bared, ready to run in among the flock and carry out whatever sheep is unprotected. That's what you're up against. You understand why the Holy Ghost is trying to press it upon your soul? You've got to look out for each other and look out for yourselves. Jesus already shed the blood. I don't want them to have to perish because of what these wolves are after. But it's not just wolves coming in from outside. Notice the next verse. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. No wonder the call to be vigilant. No wonder his final words. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Because Paul saw what was coming. This is like Jesus saying, I tell you this beforehand. Even the elect according to the covenant may be deceived in the last days. So yeah, you better prepare. You better shore up your foundation when the earthquakes come in diverse places. You better treasure up continually the words of life so you have something to lay hold on as in terms of an iron rod. Yes, you better take heed to yourselves and the flock and feed every last lamb. Because wolves are coming from the outside and people are rising up from within, even of your own selves, deceivers will arise. 
They'll draw away disciples. And sadly, we see both of those happening all around us. There is outside opposition. There always has been. There are wolves trying to pick off the weak and wounded at the edge of the herd. But there are even people in the middle of the herd. Strong sheep, supposedly, that are drawing disciples away after them. Many who leave the church leave because they believe too little. And they fall prey to the philosophies of men or worldly wisdom or worldly ways, worldly wolves. Others, though, succumb to believing too much. And so often it's the most elect among us and people proclaiming prophecy and the church has fallen away and the apostles are going too slow and come to me and I can get your calling and election made sure. And, ooh, the overzealousness there. But these, but there are disciples being drawn away. And it's tragic. Paul has been warning us about that for years. And we must be careful. We must be vigilant. In verse 32, he says, Now, brethren, I commend you to God, since I won't be here anymore to care for you. But I'll leave you in good hands, the best hands there are, the hands of heaven. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And Christ is the word, and and Christ extends the Father's grace. I'll leave you with the Savior, who is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. I've been paying my own way. He says, Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I've been making tents the whole time I've been trying to extend the tent of Zion. Which again ties Paul to King Benjamin. He said something similar at the end of his life. I have done my very best to support myself so that there would not be grievous taxes laid upon you. And that's okay. When I've been in the service of my fellow beings, I've only been in the service of my God. Paul would say amen and amen to that. What he does say, though, verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. It's another example Paul's been trying to set. Take care of each other. Consecrate. If you don't have money to give, give what you have. Support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Which is such a beautiful saying of Jesus that we wouldn't know came from Jesus if it weren't for Paul. That passage is found nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's only found there in the book of Acts. And it's Paul that somehow remembered this. Was this part of the oral tradition passed down before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put pen to paper? Was this something Jesus had said to him in, on the road to Damascus? Uh, something that ca- came to him in a vision? Uh, we don't know. But what a blessing. It's like how John ended his gospel. Remember that? If everything Jesus had said or done had been written down, there wouldn't be room on earth to contain all the books that should be written. Well, I'm glad that Paul at least penned one last proverb and gave us an additional insight into something. I would hang on any word preserved from Jesus. If you've got something he's given you, then please pass it on. Thank you, Paul, for doing that. And not just for remembering it, but for living that way. Finally, after this 
message to fellow members. Verse 36, when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. That's part of commending them to God. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. I mean, every step of the way. Can we at least join you down at the dock? Can we accompany you? Is there anything else you'd like to teach us along the way? Oh, this is a man that they love because they know he loves them. They want to give him everything because he gave them everything. This is such a beautiful example of what Jesus had said as he was about to depart, the apostles. You've got to love one another as I love you. Be my replacement in one another's lives. And Paul and these wonderful church members are exactly that for each other. But Paul needs to move forward. He knows it. The Spirit made that crystal clear. Along with the clarity of the caution, you will suffer when you get to Jerusalem. But undeterred, unmoved by that, it's time to go. Verse 1 of chapter 21, It came to pass that after we were gotten from them, and even that language describes how hard it was to say goodbye, gotten from them suggests like, man, I finally got away. The New International Version clarifies it. It says, we had torn ourselves away from them. I mean, you talk about hard to say goodbye. And I've got to go. And one more hug. And one, one, more, one more kiss on the cheek. And one more falling upon your neck. And more tears. I finally was able to part and had launched. We came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand. We sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. Now, I read that fast because that's how fast I think this trip was meant to go. It's like traveling by map on a movie, right? And they're just booking it, dotted lines straight across the Mediterranean. It's one place and then the next, and we a straight course and the day following. And there's no time, just Cyprus, forget it, sorry, wave on your, on your left hand as it passes by. Do you remember when Jesus said near the end of his life, I've got to go to Jerusalem and there I'll be betrayed and crucified and rise the third day. And the apostles are like, no, no, don't let it happen. Peter especially, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't get in my way. Or later when he says that he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. I know what awaits me, but I cannot be moved out of out of course. No wonder he went straight to Jerusalem through Samaria instead of taking the long way around. I heard when Hugh Nibley was near the end of his life, he was working on a, a final book, one last life's work. And, and Don Perry, uh, an amazing Hebrew scholar and BYU professor himself, he said he, was, he bumped into Hugh Nibley and asked him, so how's the book coming? And Hugh Nibley laughed and said, Oh, I, I told God I didn't want to die till I was done, so I'm working really slow. <laughs> and actually, he didn't live to complete it. It had to be completed by others. But in Paul's case, he's not going slow. In Jesus' case, he didn't take the long way around. It's said steadfastly, set your face and go. And those verses suggest similar urgency on the part of Paul. Nothing will stand in my way, even if suffering awaits me, abides for me. 
verse 4, and finding disciples, ah, such a pleasant surprise, good church members everywhere he went, finding disciples, he tarried there seven days. But notice what they said to him, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one another, we took ship and they returned home again. So you got another group of disciples that is with him every step of the way and weeping and pleading and praying and warning through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting place to pause and wrestle with this because Paul had a spiritual impression to go to Jerusalem and these people are having a spiritual impression for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. How does that work? Does that ever happen in your life where you get one impression and someone else gets a different one and it's the same issue? Or maybe at one time of your life you get one and a different one later and how does this work? Do you start second-guessing yourself or second-guessing the Spirit? Now, is there a way to reconcile these two revelations or are they mutually exclusive? Do they contradict one another? Well, think about it this way. If the impression was simply... Remember when Paul says in the earlier one, I know I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. I don't know everything, but I do know that bonds and affliction abide me. I knew it. I know it's going to be rough, but none of these things move me. Here, imagine these people, these well-meaning saints who love Paul. Imagine them getting the same revelation that I don't know everything that's going to happen to Paul, but when he gets to Jerusalem, he's in for it. There's going to be so much persecution and suffering. So what do we gather from that? Well, obviously, you're not supposed to go. Now, do you see what they just did? They added to the revelation their interpretation of the revelation. They saw what was going to happen to Paul and assumed it meant that he was supposed to go somewhere else. Avoid that fate. Where as far as Paul knew, like, no, that's the fate that awaits me. And I'm supposed to go for that reason. Okay? The Lord cares more about my obedience than my comfort. He cares more about my sacrifice than my success. And so I'm going to Jerusalem, come what may. This way he could honor their revelation. So, oh, I know what you mean by that. This is not confusing to me. You just interpreted it to mean I shouldn't go when I know that I must. You understand? You remember at the end of Joseph Smith's history when Joseph and Oliver Cowdery have baptized each other and with the help of the Spirit, the Scriptures start to open to their understanding in ways they never had before. Remember the phrase? It says that they saw the Scriptures' true meaning and intention in ways they never dreamed of earlier. And I've wrestled with the difference between meaning and intention. It's one thing to dig into Scripture and find out what they mean. It's another thing to ponder, ask the Spirit to help you apply those Scriptures. Ah, that's what the Scripture intends. That's what the Lord, the, the Lord intends me to do about that Scripture. And if I can understand its meaning, then perhaps the intention will come more clear also. Do you understand the difference? In terms of insight that we get from the Spirit or revelation we receive from the Lord, we've got to work on both meaning and intention. This is what God is showing me. What am I supposed to do about it? And don't just assume that you know, okay? Seek spiritual clarification. Years ago, my wife and I were hoping for a baby. 
we were newlyweds and felt like it, we were older than we wanted to be before the kids came. It took me forever to convince my wife to marry me. And so I felt like we're behind and let's start having children immediately. And month after month and after month after month, no children came. And it was hard. My wife had even said her biggest fear as a teenager was, will I not be able to have children of my own? And that nightmare seemed to be coming a reality. And we kept praying and fasting and waiting and worrying and nothing. Eventually for us, it took infertility specialists and surgery and miracles and they came. Our children did. We're grateful for every one. But at the time, it got harder and harder and harder on my wife. Until one day, she felt the Spirit just wrap his arms around her to the point that she just knew, I must be pregnant. I've been praying about it. I've been hoping. I've been waiting for it. And here in the middle of this, this experience, I have this euphoric rise above my tribulation. And I, it's... That's the best feeling I've had. It's the best news I could ever get. I must be pregnant. And honestly, I can't remember if it was later that day or the next day, it became painfully clear that she was not pregnant after all. It wasn't happening that month. And she was devastated. So was I. But to hear her description of the spiritual impression she received, forced us both to wrestle with what did that mean? And what did God intend? Just because I felt the Spirit, it didn't mean that that one specific thing is going to happen according to my hopes. Was it God saying, not that that's going to work out, but rather, it's all going to work out. And I am aware of you my daughter. Please do not feel forgotten. You're about to have an experience where you'll wonder where I am. Because bad news is about to come. And despite your prayers and despite your fasting, you're going to be tempted to shake your fist heavenward and wonder, oh God, where art thou? And why don't you seem to care about me and my righteous desires? And God had to foreclose that possibility. He had to say, nope, that's not an option. The bad news is still going to come. But in advance of that, I need you to know that I'm aware of you and your circumstance. And I love you and I care for you and I am blessing you. And let me wrap you up in my arms. So when the temptation comes to feel forgotten, you'll know that you have never been forsaken by me. That was intention on God's part. We only knew meaning. And these people know the meaning, but not what God intended. I love that Paul is going to be able to navigate these seemingly contradictory revelations because he understands the source of both. He's not second-guessing himself. He's not second-guessing them. He's not saying, you got your wires crossed. Merely, merely, thank you for your compassionate concern. But the things that you're warning me against are the things that I must face undeterred. And so he moves forward. In verse 7, when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren. There they are again, every step of the way. 
he abode with them one day because he's got to get going. And sure enough, the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. Oh, we're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. We've now embarked upon the land of Israel itself. We entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. It's been years since he was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch, and here he is still evangelizing. That's his new title, Philip the Evangelist. And his home, open to fellow servants of the Lord, they abide. Now the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And I love the thought of Philip having such spiritually gifted daughters. Virtuous, with the gift of prophecy and revelation. Oh, my friends, don't ever underestimate your children. And also, don't picture apostles and evangelists in the New Testament as being these solitary figures that left nothing or, or left no one behind at home. I mean, it's one thing for the saints to weep upon your neck and kiss you goodbye and wish that you didn't have to leave. But imagine that happening far more intimately with, with, with family back at home. We know that Peter was married, for example. He had a mother-in-law that Jesus healed. Here we know that Philip had daughters, and to picture the self-sacrifice of these servants of God and their families to let them go and serve the Lord. Now in verse 10, as we tarried there many days, great place to stay, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And he's the same one we met back in chapter 11 that had prophesied that famine and that it was fulfilled. So here's a good, a good discerning soul, someone in, in this, with the spirit of revelation and prophecy. And what does Agabus say when he comes? When he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle, like grabbed Paul's belt, and then bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth his girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now this is a third witness of Paul's initial impression. And a second witness of what those well-meaning disciples had just said to him in a previous city. I mean, here's Agabus. He seems to be more kind of cut from the cloth of an Old Testament prophet that loved visual aids and object lessons, who takes Paul's belt and ties up his own hands and feet and says, okay, I'm playing charades. Who does this belt belong to? Okay, got that? Whoever is the owner is going to end up in this condition. If you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound you will be persecuted. So don't go. And everyone's like, yeah, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul's like, really? Guys, <laughs> I knew all that. You didn't have to act it out, Agabus. I know that's what awaits me there. But none of these things move me. Check intention, not just meaning. I honor your meaning. But we differ on intention. So, verse 13, Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? This is hard for him, not just spiritually knowing that what he's in for, but emotionally knowing that there are these wonderful disciples that he loves and love him. So, dry your tears and mend my heart and just let me go. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Tying yourself up, Agabus, that's the least of my concerns. I'm willing to die for him who died for me. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. Paul is being pulled between the love of his fellow disciples and his own love for the Lord. In some ways, this is his own experience with the spirit being willing, but the flesh being weak and tug of war and which side will I go with? I really could do the saints a lot of good if I survive. Forget Jerusalem. Go back to Asia Minor. Go back to Macedonia. I'm sure there's still other people praying for me to come and help them. But no, I know better. And the Lord has made it crystal clear that I am to join him in what Paul will later call the fellowship of his sufferings. There's something I have to learn by going through all that. And so I'll go through it, come what may. So in verse 16, There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Manassan of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And if he's old, we see here again, old and young, male and female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, the gospel net is gathering of every kind. In fact, among these disciples, if there's an old one, maybe this means he's old enough to have remembered Jesus himself. I mean, years have passed. And these old timers that remember the days, maybe he was there at the day of Pentecost. I don't know, but this old disciple, come stay with me. And they do. And when we were come to Jerusalem, we finally arrived, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. Again, seems to be the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. He of Jerusalem conference fame. Paul comes in. All the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. This is the return and report moment on mission number three. And what's he testifying of? God's work, not his own. I mean, yeah, I was there. It was by my ministry. But it's what God has wrought. Incredible. This is what Paul, a Peter would have loved this. Yeah, not taking any glory to himself. Why are you looking at me like I had done some great thing? I was no big deal as a missionary. But to see the Lord's hand, this is Ammon after his missionary. I'm not glorying in myself. I am glorying in God. And I can't say the least part of what I feel. Paul was, is doing likewise. But then verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And yes, it's the Lord they're glorifying, not Paul, which is exactly what he intended in giving God the glory. But they said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe? And they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So this is an interesting caution. Paul, we're on your side. We're glorying in the Lord right alongside you. This is amazing what he has done through your ministry. But we're also worried. It's incredible to see the growth of the church among the Gentiles. But the church is also growing among the Jews. And you get a look how many thousands of Jewish Christians are in the church and how many believe. And they're as zealous for Christianity, good news, but they're also still zealous of the law. Is this the amount of Judaizers in the church that are saying, we know that 
Judaism is fulfilled in Christianity. But you've got to pass through Judaism on your way to Christianity. And so they're concerned about not only the Jewish converts, but they're especially con uh, concerned about any, gen any Jews out there in the diaspora that haven't been circumcised, and they're spreading rumors that you're not requiring it, that you're not expecting it. In fact, that you aren't even that big about on the law anymore. It's just customs, and who cares? Now, there is some truth in their concern, but also some misjudgment of Paul. Don't you remember at the beginning of this week's lesson what happened with, with Timothy as he set out with Paul? At Paul's encouragement, Timothy was willing to be circumcised. So he'd fit in, so he wouldn't offend Jews. Paul is not trying to offend Jews. He's trying to convert them. But he's also trying to convert Gentiles. And so how do you strike this balance? James knows how to struggle with that. He's the one that helped craft the compromise at the Jerusalem conference. But I think similar issues arise for us whenever new and old come into contact. And perhaps you're part of the old guard in your ward. And then there's a bunch of new people moving in. Perhaps you're used to the way it, things used to be done, and you prefer that. And now all these new changes, I don't know what President Nelson's up to. It wasn't broken, then try, don't quit fixing it. Or maybe it's on a more personal level where the missionaries keep bringing in people that are so needy, or they're not the kind of people that we're used to in our ward or branch. Even globally, the center of gravity in global Christianity is shifting to the south. The Pope is from Argentina, not from Europe. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is growing fastest in Africa and Latin America. That's amazing. The gospel is spreading to fill the world. But those of the old guard, I hope there's no concern about that. If General Conference ever got to the point where it's the English speakers that wore the headphones, would that be a cause for concern? I hope not. Wherever the kingdom rolls and wherever the Lord takes it, but I can sense among these Jews, J James is well aware of it. And this is the capital of the old kingdom. And we're starting to shift north and west. I'm not sure about this. There's a lot of people here, I should say, that are not sure about this. So verse 22, what is it therefore? What are we going to do, Paul? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. And you're on everybody's mind. I have these rumors are flying. You're in town. They're all going to want to come and find out what exactly are you saying. So do therefore this that we say to thee. Here's the plan. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. And what he means by be at charges basically is saying, hey, Paul, you've been living this Nazarite vow. You shaved your head. Well, these four have a vow on them. They need to have their heads shaven. To do that, you got to go to the temple and then have it ritually shaven. And it costs money to pay a priest to do that. Why don't you pay for them and for you? Go purify thyself with them. Be at charges with them. Pay the charge. That way, all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing. 
This is not somebody who's going against circumcision. This is not somebody that's making light of Jewish customs. He's not putting down or destroying the law of Moses. Those rumors are nothing. But that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Yes, please prove those rumors false. Show your obedience. And Paul has been. Remember, he's racing to get back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there for the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, shaved his head, did his own vow, preaching in synagogues. He's got Jewish credentials, and they're deep. The leadership is just trying to, encouraging him, show those credentials even more obviously. We want to honor the influx of Gentiles without offending the Jews. And that's going to be difficult. That's some balance. That's a balancing act. That's proving contraries. That's being inclusive and identity-based. And how uh, can we do this? Can we do it all together? Paul believes that he can. So he does. Now, verse 25, they say, As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication, which is just a repetition of the decision reached at the Jerusalem conference. We're not trying to superimpose anything more burdensome upon them than that. Okay, so that's our, that's kind of, we're giving on that side. Will you give on your side and participate in this purification, right? And Paul's all for it. So Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Right, those verses are full of Jewish things. The temple, purification, offerings. He's a Gentile to the Gentiles. He's a Jew to the Jews. He's a Christian at, at core. Just doing the very best he can to meet everyone's needs without offending anyone else. Hard to do. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, purification's almost finished. It's like, okay, we just got to make it across the finish line. Everything will be okay. Well, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the prophets and the law and this place. Same kinds of accusations they leveled against Jesus. Same kinds of things they said against the apostles earlier on in the book of Acts. He's anti-Jewish. He's anti-law of Moses. He's anti-temple. In fact, they say, further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. And then Luke puts in parentheses, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. But that's all it was, supposing. It was an assumption. These Jews from Asia, and that's an interesting one. On the one hand, they'd have a better sense of what's going on out there in Gentile territory. And sure enough, we see Gentiles flooding in the church left and right. And it's weird. We don't want these outsiders coming in. And then we've got Jews that are, are converting, but they're not being circumcised. And, and, and here, we've been out on... <sighs> on the front lines, trying to maintain our Jewish identity in the face of, of the Gentile world. In some ways, they're a lot like Timothy, trying to hold to this side of the culture, in, in, right on the face of that side of the culture. How do I balance both? These guys are up in arms. 
and they see Paul, that we've heard so much about, go into the temple with a bunch of other people, and surely they must be the Gentiles that he's brought to Jerusalem with them. And there's no evidence of that. Those were people that James brings up and says, why don't you take them? They're going to go purify themselves anyway. This is a baseless assumption, but it's one that, that they run with, much to the danger of Paul. And as a result, verse 30, all the city was moved. We keep seeing this. Every city Paul goes to ends up being roused and riled up against him. All the city was moved, and the people ran together. Here's mob action starting to form. They took Paul. They drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, keep that in mind. That's their intention. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul probably just in the nick of time. Remember, they were intent on killing him. This is not a, a slap in the face. This is not rough him up and let him go. This is, let's beat him to death. Let's have a Stephen all over again and stone him right here outside the temple. To the point that the Roman soldiers, who the Antonia fortress was right there, ready to come sweeping down to put down any rebellion, since the temple is probably a place that's going to erupt tinderbox down there. And sure enough, they see the sparks starting to fly and they rush down and forcibly remove Paul from the hands of his attackers to the point that they have to stop beating him to death. How close was Paul? We don't know. But this was what Paul was ready for. This is what the people and Agabus were all afraid of, but no fear in Paul. The Spirit said it would be this way. Verse 33, then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, just like Peter had been in prison. Makes you wonder, would Paul be blessed with a similar miracle? Is there going to be another earthquake? Is he going to convert another jailer? How's this going to work? Well, we don't know yet, but here the chief captain demands who he was and what he had done. Just like Pilate had done with Jesus. Now, some cried one thing, some another, among the multitude. And when he, the chief captain, could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle, into the fortress. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he, Paul, was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, away with him. Now we get a better glimpse of just how close to death Paul had come that he couldn't support himself physically. He couldn't walk up the steps into the Antonia Fortress. It took four men, just picture him limp and almost lifeless, and four soldiers lifting him up stair by stair as the multitudes continue to shout away with him, just like they had years before, crucify him when it came to Christ. It's intense what... Paul is going through. But he's safe now, isn't he? Has he checked that box and he came to Jerusalem and now I can head back out into the mission field and lick my wounds and recover? Well, notice what he does. Verse 37, As Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? 
Now that sounds really polite, doesn't it? Compared to what he'd done earlier when he's demanding, like, nope, I'm not leaving prison. I demand you to come and get me out of prison so you see I shouldn't be here. But no, it's just a word, please, oh, chief captain. Now the chief captain said, whoa, canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? Now we know the chief captain's assumption. I don't know who this guy is, but based on everything that's happening down there, it must be someone that's so horrible that the whole Jewish nation seems to be up in arms against him. Yeah, it must be an outsider. Probably that Egyptian guy I've heard about. And all the murderers that he assembled... Okay, that probably explains this civil unrest in town. But when Paul very calmly and politely says, excuse me, can I have a word with you? And it's all in the Greek language. This Roman soldier, chief captain, is blown away. You're more educated. Greek is not the language of the masses. It's the language of the, the educated. And you're, you're no Egyptian, are you? you I'm... Who are you again? What have you done? No insurrection? No mass murder? What's the deal here? And verse 39, Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus. So not Egyptian, but not Greek either. I'm Jewish. So those are my people out there yelling at me. Now, I'm not from here. I'm from Tarsus, but that's a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. So I'm not some country bumpkin. That's the Greek knowledge. A citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. Now that would surprise the, the chief captain as much as hearing him speak Greek. Wait, you want to talk to them? I just saved your life by pulling you away from them. And you want me to, you want me to turn you back around? Well, that, you don't have to put me in their hands, but please give, give me their ears. I'm one of them. They don't seem to accept that. So will you please make it possible for me to preach to them? Just speak to them. That's the word, sorry. But really what he wants to do is preach. Can I please speak to the people one more time? And that seemed okay to the chief captain. So when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying... And that's the end of the chapter? And the end of this week's lesson? Talk about a cliffhanger. We didn't even get a period there. We get a comma. And then we're waiting for the quotation marks. And we're all waiting in bated breath as this bloodied and bruised yet unbowed man. Somehow being able to stand there on the steps. Are the four soldiers still trying to lift him and bear him up? But raising this bloodied hand and trying to calm the crowds and call their attention, I do have one last message to give you. It's the reason I came to Jerusalem in the first place. It's the reason I am willing to suffer persecution at anyone's hands. Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, Romans, I am not moved away from the path that lies ahead of me. We will have to wait till next week to see what Paul says here. And to think of him pleading, begging for his life. Now, that doesn't sound like Paul. Will he be like a Peter to cry repentance and say, you're the ones that crucified Christ. 
Well, is he hoping to prick their hearts so they'll ask men and brethren, what shall we do, and then have a few more thousand people baptized? That'd be a good option. Or his, is he assuming it will be more like Stephen? Will he preach a long history lesson that culminates in his own death by stoning? Like I said, we will have to wait till next week to see what Paul says, but if there's anything that's happened this week and the week before, I hope we've come to know Paul by way of his character so that we won't be surprised at what he tells us next week. I am so amazed by him and most grateful for his immovable, unshakable testimony of Jesus Christ. In the face of opposition from no matter what quarter, Paul was in tune with the Holy Ghost. Paul tried to honor everyone around him. Paul was bold and undaunted and willing to do anything and everything for the Lord he loved. Can you hear him inviting us to follow his example? That we may move forward with faith and be not moved from our faith in Jesus Christ.